believer. I guess that should be uh, our theme. When someone tells you who they are, believe them. When things are exactly what they seem, believe it. When you hold something in your hand and you feel it, believe that it's there. We're constantly being told to betray the things we know are true, or at least we believe are true. Now, uh, many people are so confused at what is really going on here. This is not about right or left. You're now seeing that they're all one in the same, and everyone is out for blood. I mean, everyone, every single one of them. You know, free will, it's always about choice. And a lot of people that like to rationalize their thoughts think a free will, or uh, I should say, that Jesus says to give everything away and just wander around and know Jesus was always draped in the nicest fabrics and drinking with kings and rich men, having conversations, had nice satchels. I mean, Mary Magdalene was pretty loaded and her story is a bit muddled, but it's not about that. You live in a situation where there's constant lack believe that there's not enough, that there must be some separation, that there's never enough for everyone when it's completely the opposite. This is how they get in your mind. This is how they guide you. Oh, you need this backsplash, not that one. But again, you always have a choice. They have, throughout eons, divided the people via race, class, religion, political, then what did they use? The same things. The jesters, Hollywood, media, and they have a megaphone. They can be heard and seen from space, per se. Because if the people are united, then there's a great deal of power that they can't overcome. You know, while everyone is fighting, And everyone would look at Poulos, who is a piece of shit, uh, in my opinion, right? He sold out hardcore. His filings against Rudy Giuliani and Mike Lindell and Sidney Powell are riddled with things that I can easily debunk, like when they were created and how it came about. And whose patent is this bitch of a patent? See, what people don't seem to understand is the corporations grew from these kings and queens. And consumerism was used to consume you and kind of just an ouroboros, I might say. They need you to survive, but they also need you to consume and be consumed. And through division, they successfully make it so. Now, the one thing that this country is different on than any other country is the fact that we are free on paper. We are actually free on paper. We have rights, constitutional rights, that are still being upheld regardless of what some idiot from Rhode Island says is too much of a hassle to listen to now about, right? We shouldn't talk about this. But see, the truth is so visible right now. 
It is so crystal clear of everything that you see and what is happening. Maybe it'll be a little bit more crystal clear if we revisit some notions that may be important, but feed into what we want to talk about today. And that is, that, uh, uh, well, let's talk about maps again. Let's revisit this little tidbit of importance in the 40s. Let's talk about how Korea was split in two. Ever wondered what happened to, you know, Korea? Like most geopolitical changes in the world, the division of Korea was the result of war. The Korean War took place from 1950 to 1953, but it wasn't really the Korean War that split the country. The Korean War just made the split more permanent, but it was already split. We need to look not only at the Korean War, but look at the bigger picture. The split had more to do with the Cold War. The Cold War was interesting and it wasn't so much a war in the traditional sense. The Cold War was effectively a war of wars. The Cold War was primarily between the United States and the Soviet Union, but in a more broad sense it was effectively an ideological war between capitalism and communism. The US and the USSR never actually fought each other in direct battle, but instead fought each other indirectly through proxy wars. One example would be the Vietnam War. The United States, who were helping South Vietnam, were at war with communist North Vietnam, while the Soviets provided them with tanks, aircraft and weapons, as well as billions of dollars in funding. Another example would be the Soviet war in Afghanistan. The Soviets fought with the communist Afghan government, while the United States gave $3 billion and funded to the Mujahideen to fight in the civil war. However, this turned out to be a horrible decision for the US, as one of the leaders of the Mujahideen turned out to be one Osama bin Laden, who later went on to form Al-Qaeda, who later went on to declare war on the United States. So in a roundabout way, the US effectively funded terrorism against themselves. But back to Korea. The Korean War is effectively another one of these proxy wars as part of the Cold War. But the split Korea happened even before the Cold War. The country was actually split at the end of World War II. If you've seen my first video, I talked about how Japan surrendered in World War II and had to give up land that they had acquired via force by signing the Potsdam Declaration, which included Taiwan. As well as Taiwan though, Japan also had control of the entire Korean Peninsula which the Japanese Empire had annexed in 1910 from the Korean Empire. The Japanese ruled Korea for 35 years before the surrender. But this is different from the situation with Taiwan. Taiwan's an island which made up a tiny amount of the Republic of China's land, so it's simply a case of handing sovereignty over to China. But with Korea, Japan took all of their land, so the Korean Empire had effectively been wiped off the map. Therefore, by order of the United Nations, Korea was to be temporarily split at the 38th parallel. Soviet Union were to control the North while the United States controlled the South, with a plan to unite the country in time. It's important to note that at this point, the US and the USSR were allies at this time, although they didn't exactly trust each other. The United Nations scheduled elections in both parts of Korea. They were to be fair and democratic. In the South, Syngman Rhee was elected and the Republic of Korea was established taking control over from the US military. However, in the North, Soviet Union refused to hold free elections and a communist state was established with Kim Il-sung as the leader of the country, grandfather of the current North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un. By 1949, all US and Soviet forces had withdrawn from Korea. 
The Soviets and Communist China had significantly armed the North Koreans with weapons and funding. The US, on the other hand, they weren't quite so generous with the South Koreans and refused to even give them any tanks, leaving them seriously ill-equipped for a war. And war is exactly what happened. In 1950, under the direction of Soviet leader Joseph Stalin, North Korea crossed the 38th parallel and invaded South Korea. Stalin didn't expect the US to get involved since he had already withdrawn all of their troops and they didn't intervene in the victory of Communist China and the Chinese Civil War in the previous year. However, the UN Security Council unanimously voted to intervene in Korea. Ironically though, the Soviet Union was part of the UN Security Council's Big Five and had veto power. Unfortunately for them, they weren't there to veto the resolution. See, even though Communist China had effectively won the Civil War and had total control of the mainland, the Republic of China, who only had control of Taiwan, still held the seat of China at the UN. In protest of this, the Soviet Union boycotted all UN meetings. So the UN intervened to protect South Korea, although it's mostly US forces. The troops were led by the United States under the command of General MacArthur. Stalin promised to help North Korea as much as possible, however, he insisted that Soviet forces would not engage in combat with US forces. But why is this, you might wonder. I mean, why engage in all these proxy wars and indirect fighting? Why don't the United States and Soviet Union just fight each other directly? Well, the answer to that can be summed up in three words. Mutually Assured Destruction See, at the time, the US and the USSR were considered the two superpowers of the world, and the consequences of both superpowers at all at war with each other would have had catastrophic repercussions. As well as being superpowers, they were also both nuclear weapon states. See, in the early 40s, the US, with the help of the UK and Canada, worked on the Manhattan Project, which is basically codenamed for developing an atomic bomb. It's a slightly more conspicuous name. In 1945, the US showed the sheer destructive power of these weapons when they dropped atomic bombs on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. After seeing this, the Soviet Union significantly increased their own research into nuclear weapons and, in 1949, they successfully tested their own atomic bomb. So war between the United States and the Soviet Union would have inevitably ended in World War III and, for the first time, nuclear war. This wouldn't have just been bad for the US and Russia, but absolutely, literally, everyone, and could have quite easily led to the end of human civilization. But thankfully that didn't happen. Joseph Stalin was fully aware of the potential consequences of engaging in combat with US forces. Say what you want about Joseph Stalin, but at least he was smart enough not to go to war with the US. Credit where credit's due, that's all I'm saying. By September 1950, North Korea had South Korea cornered in the Pusan perimeter and a communist victory looked imminent. The North Koreans had to send supplies to their soldiers on the front line, which General MacArthur thought he could exploit. Instead of trying to break through with ground forces, the US used their navy to flank the North Koreans. They took back control of the city of Seoul and managed to disrupt the North Korean supply line. Within just a few months, things had completely changed and it now looked like South Korea was on the verge of victory. However, at this point, China, who had thus far not been involved, marched their troops across the border and pushed the UN forces back to the 38th parallel. Control of the peninsula fluctuated for a while around the 38th parallel. Ironically, control ended very similar to what had been to begin with. In 1953, North and South Korea signed an armistice agreement creating a de facto international border. It's worth noting that an armistice agreement is not a peace treaty, so technically speaking, they're actually still at war. 
After the agreement, both sides built barriers to stop each other from crossing the border, and there's now a four-kilometre-wide demilitarised zone. Which is a somewhat ironic name given it's the single most militarised border in the entire world. Speaking of ironic names, North Korea's official name is the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Which is ironic since several organisations have ranked North Korea as the single least democratic country in the entire world. And the good thing about talking about North Korea is, no one's going to be offended. I can safely say that no one from North Korea is ever going to see this video. In 1991, both North and South Korea became members of the United Nations, although neither country recognises the other and both consider themselves the legitimate government of all of Korea. The only place where North and South Korean leaders meet is inside the DMZ in a place called the Joint Security Area. The GSA, including the room they meet in, lie directly on the border, which isn't actually a border but an MDL or an armistice line. In fact, the line even passes through the very conference table they sit at. So the two leaders basically talk to each other from different countries and don't cross the line. There's a door at each side of the room which leads back to their own country. Today, North Korea and South Korea are pretty much as different as two countries can be. They both speak Korean and they both have the word Korea in their name, but that's pretty much where the similarities end. South Korea has a free market capitalist economy. So... Now you see more stories about North Korea, South Korea, and this, oh, yeah, you know, because they're superpowers, they didn't fight. No, they had a deal. Remember, the big three, they met in Ukraine where they made this decision. And everything else is just extra sauce and added, you know, perfume and lipstick to a pig to trying to convince you that it's not. But since we're having fun with maps, let's watch a few fun maps until we get to the map. Um that is of interest. So this is a um, uh, put together type uh, show by someone who has some really truthful maps. Take a gander. They're very good at helping to understand place. place, aren't they? You can look at a map of the United States, but it isn't really helpful in understanding what it's really like in each state. We need to look at different maps to see what it's really like in the United States, right? So we're going to look at a bunch of different maps to really explain what this country's like. Here are hilarious maps that explain America with additional insights. Maps! 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 About America. Ah, here we are in the state of Wisconsin. Now, if you know anything about American culture, you know there's a stereotype that people in this part of the country drink a lot of booze. We're going to begin with a look at a map which shows if this is true or not. Check this out. This map shows where there's more bars or grocery stores in the U.S., depending on where you live. The red dots are areas where there's more bars than grocery stores. The yellow dots show where there's more grocery stores than bars. Look at that. Wisconsin, North Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, and Illinois have more bars than grocery stores. So does upstate New York. Look at the deep south. Hardly any bars, just all grocery stores. That goes along with the theory that it's deeply religious in the deep south, so there's not as many bars. Cool, huh? Let's look at another one, shall we? Meth labs per county. <laughs> I'm from this county over here, like the biggest meth lab square in the country. Look at all those meth labs. I'm so proud. There's a bunch on the west coast. That makes sense. I think meth labs were invented in Oregon or California, out there somewhere. But a lot of them look like they're in the middle of the country, surrounding St. Louis. Why are they all right there? 
Well, in Missouri, there's a saying, minding one's own business often goes with the territory. There's a lot of poverty in Missouri, and some people make meth as a way to supplement their income or as a performance enhancer. It's all very sad and very scary. If you live in a meth lab county, comment. Let us know what's up. Look at this map. It shows where all the different races in America are. The green is Hispanic, and the orange is black folks. The light blue are Native Americans. The dark blue is where Asians are, like here in San Francisco. The white areas are where it's mostly white. And as you can see, it's a very divided country. A lot of us live in regions that are similar to us racially. New Mexico has the nation's highest Hispanic population as a percentage of its population. 48% of New Mexico is Hispanic. Alternatively, Mississippi is 37% African-American, making it the state with the highest percentage of black residents. Up here in Vermont, it's 94% white. Interesting. (laughs) Oh my God. Here's a map that shows who the highest paid public employee is in each state. Almost every single one's a football or basketball coach at some big college. So that's an interesting map right there, right? In almost every state, aside from New York and Maine and Nevada, which have medical school surgeons, deans, college presidents, and law school deans, um, the majority of the United States have athletic coaches with the highest paid state salary. That is quite fascinating, I might say. Quite fascinating to see where all of that federal tax money, state tax money goes. That's just just sad. sad. In In New Hampshire, it's a hockey coach. How much does a hockey coach make in New Hampshire, you might ask? At the time, it was a guy named Dick Umali who got paid $242,000 a year in 2014. The president of the school only made $385K. So Dick must have been a good coach. And going back to 1990, he never won a national title in 28 seasons. Damn, son. This map shows that more people search for lesbian porn in Arkansas than in any other state. That's weird. Here's a map that shows the fattest countries in the whole world. Dark red is more obese. Look at us. There we go. 37% of Americans are overweight. We're the 12th fattest nation overall. Only a bunch of small South Pacific nations have a greater population of overweight citizens. Look at this. Going back to 1960, only 13% of U.S. adults were overweight. We need to diet for sure, people. Vietnam's the skinniest nation overall. Only 2% are overweight there. But China has like zero overweight people too. Africa hardly has any, except the rich African countries. They're all fat. I want to move to the country at the top. To Greenland? Yeah, no one's fat there. I'd fit right in. (laughs) Yeah, you go there, Karen. Go to Greenland, please. Hey, this is neat. Here's an interactive one that shows how fast Walmart grew beginning in 1962. It was all in Arkansas. There's more than 11,000 Walmarts now. Look at it. It's like a germ spreading all over the country. Ah, run, it's Walmart. (laughs) JK Walmart, don't sue me. But how many Walmarts does one nation need anyways? My God, my God. Roll back. Okay, so we're the most overweight nation on earth. We're also number one in prisons per capita. It's not even really close. We have 4% of the world's population, but we have 22% of the world's prisoners. At least we did. Seems like we're letting everybody out now. One day it's going to look like this, and we're all going to die. Russia locks a lot of people up too. North Korea doesn't have a lot of people locked up. I guess they just probably don't mess around there. 
This country down here is Thailand, where they apparently don't mess around either. Don't go to Thailand and cause any mischief. I guess they have some really strict drug laws, so you can go to prison for a long time just for having a joint on you. They even have the death penalty for drugs in Thailand. What the, what the? That's not COVID spreading. The orange color is where half the country's wealth is, and the blue is the other half. Half the country's wealth is in these few little orange areas. Like, this one's Minneapolis, and I'm guessing that one is St. Louis. That's Charlotte, and that looks like Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh has money? There's a big gap between the rich and poor in this country, and that gap is widening. The middle class is shrinking at an alarming rate. In 1970, the middle class had almost two-thirds of the total U.S. income. Now the upper class has more money, and the poor are even poorer. Here's a visual representation of how the rich keep getting richer in America, people. Ooh, this map shows how big Alaska really is. If you added all of Alaska up, it would take up all these pink states. So if you're in Maine or you're in Florida or in Tennessee, you'd still be in Alaska. Just wow. So impressive, Alaska. So impressive. Guess which country gives new moms no paid leave? We don't. And so do a handful of other countries, some of which you may not have even heard of before. Why don't we have a paid leave system for new moms here in the USA? I mean, 82% of people here say they want it. And it's pretty clear in a lot of the hoods I drive through, these kids need their parents around as much as they can get. Biden said he wanted to spend more than $200 billion to give people 12 weeks of paid maternity or paternity leave. It hasn't happened yet. Apparently, after World War II, Europe started the whole paid maternity leave thing because they needed parents to have lots of kids because their country got demolished in the war. And here, we didn't have to worry about that. Plus, we couldn't be a communist nation back then, so we just never got around to paying moms to stay home with their newborns. Plus, get this. This is messed up. Back in the 50s and 60s, there was an idea that if you had paid leave, it would encourage the wrong people to reproduce, meaning blacks. No. Seriously, it says it right here in this BBC article. I wish my mom had paid leave. Juan, I've seen your family. We'd be broke. This is fun. This map shows how Americans address a group of people. It's y'all in the South. For most of us, it's you guys. Why isn't there a use for Pennsylvania? Isn't that a thing? Here's a U.S. map that shows where no one lives. The green is where nobody lives. A lot of the West is still wild, mister. In Alaska, there's hardly anybody. I'm sure a lot of people are looking at this map going, I'm heading for green. Is there a house in there for me? <laughs> green sounds good right about now, doesn't it? Peaceful, quiet, cheap, no BS. I hear you, peeps. I hear you. Here's a look at the happiest states in the country, or at least people who say they're happy. A lot of the Mountain West and Upper Midwest says they're happy. This whole area down here says they are not happy. Those also happen to be most of the poorest states too except for New Mexico. I guess that shows in America, if you don't have a lot of money, you aren't happy. And that's just sad. Why is Texas so happy? <laughs> okay, so here's where all the McDonald's are in the US. No wonder we're all so fat. There's 14,000 McDonald's here. It's said that every American is no further than 115 miles from a McDonald's. Where's that other map we saw earlier? Yep, there we are. But it's okay. We're happy, right? You know what gerrymandering is, don't you? Where lawmakers redraw voting maps to favor one party? Well, check out the 4th District in Chicago. This weird-shaped pink district is all Latinos. That weirdly drawn map will have one representative in Congress. 
who will likely be Latina. Let's utilize. Oh, wow. I was talking and nobody could hear me, huh? Well, I wanted to say (laughs) you couldn't hear me. Could you? No, you couldn't. All right. Here we go. So as you can see, this crazy drawn map (laughs) uh, that makes no sense. Absolute no sense. Uh, It's all squiggly, taking neighborhoods, highly specific corners. Some blocks are left out. So it's not like a clean cut, you know, the way we uh, kind of uh, split North and South Korea at the 45th degree. You know, that's just a whole country. When it comes to elections, we need to, you know, kind of separate block to block. We need Jenny from the block, not Joe. So we need to keep it over there. Well, let's get a crash course in uh, gerrymandering. All right. All right. (laughs) We're not going to take it anymore. I'm trying to see what the issue is and my feed keeps getting cut out. Um, I'll figure it out. Let's get back to PBS and getting a crash course on gerrymandering. Hi, I'm Craig and this is Crash Course Government and Politics. And today I'm going to talk about a topic in American politics that tends to drive people crazy. Ah! No, it's not partisanship or horse race journalism or the state of political punditry, although we could easily do episodes on all three of those. And we might. Nope, today we're going to look at the election districts and how they shape electoral outcomes. And that means, you guessed it, we're going to talk about gerrymandering. Thank goodness. Gerrymandering is a blight on our American election system. It completely thwarts the will of the majority, and it's responsible for our lopsided House of Representatives. Not so fast, my left-wing sore loser friend. Gerrymandering is not nearly as responsible for the 2014 Republican Congress as the fact that people like you self-segregate into urban enclaves of socialism. All right, calm down, clones. Gerrymandering is a little more nuanced than that. Let's talk it out. Congressional apportionment, how many representatives each state gets, is super exciting even though it it only changes every 10 years. Since the number of representatives each state gets is based on population, it's important to know how many people are in each state. That's one reason, at least in the Constitution, that we have a census every 10 years. The most populous state, California, has the largest number of representatives, 53, and the least populous states have only one. Sorry, Alaska, Delaware, the Dakotas, Vermont, and Wyoming, and Montana, and the state of loneliness. One is the loneliest number. In those sparsely populated states, figuring out the election district, which geographic area is represented by a congressman, is easy because there's only one district. This makes elections in these states effectively at-large elections, like a state's choice for senator. Even though there are two senators from each state, they represent the entire state at large rather than only a part of it, like representatives are supposed to do. The Electoral College, the system through which Americans choose their president, are also a type of at-large election. The rest of the states are divided into what are called single-member districts. This means that each election district chooses one representative. Now, you might think it would be simple to divide a state into as many pieces as it has representatives, but why would you think that? Nothing is simple. Districts are required to be equal or almost equal in population, and in most states, populations are not evenly distributed across the entire region. The notion that election districts must encompass equal population is the essence of the idea of one person, one vote, a principle that was cast into law by the 1962 Supreme Court decision in Baker versus Carr. It means that a person's vote counts equally no matter where they live, at least as far as the House of Representatives goes. In the Senate, it doesn't actually work out because a resident of a small state like Delaware has the same number of senators, two as a resident of California. To put it another way, in 2014, two senators represented 897,934 Delawareans, and the same number of senators represented approximately 38 million Californians. In the House, each representative is responsible for about seven to 800,000 people, which is still a lot, but 
much better than one senator for 19 million Californians or 13 million Texans. The idea that people should be equally represented in Congress shouldn't be controversial, and for the most part, it's not. What is controversial is the way that minority groups are represented. One of the problems with single-member districts is that they can make it easier to cut minority groups out of the political landscape. After all, if in a given state only 15% of the residents are minorities, it will be more difficult for them to elect a member of their own group, even under a plurality rule, unless that person can appeal to a large number of non-minority people. Congress and the Supreme Court have tried to remedy this problem by mandating that there be majority-minority districts, which is a confusing way of saying districts where the majority of voters are members of a minority group. This is a little like affirmative action in the realm of voting, and as you might have guessed, there's a fair amount of disagreement among people who think a lot about it, although I bet that number itself is a pretty small minority. This idea of majority-minority districts leads us into a really fun aspect of congressional districting, the way that the districts themselves are drawn, a process known as gerrymandering after the 19th century political cartoon that depicted one particular Massachusetts district that looked like a reptile. Oh, there it is. Looks like a dragon or something. And we all know dragons are reptiles. The man responsible for this twisted district, the name of my band in high school, was Elbridge Jerry, hence the name Gerrymander. So districts have to be drawn in a way that they contain roughly equal populations. So why does it matter if they look convoluted or even somewhat ridiculous like this? Well, states don't just draw districts to make them equal in population. They draw them to capture certain population characteristics so that one party has a greater chance of electing a member from a particular district. In the district pictured here, the Illinois 4th, Chicago has been carved up to capture a certain population. Me. That's the district I live in. Usually, districts are drawn so that they can capture my vote, or a significant majority of one party or the other, virtually ensuring that a particular district will elect only a Democrat or Republican, as the case may be. You might have noticed that thin strip on the Illinois 4th's western edge connecting the upper half and the lower half. Look carefully and you'll see that it runs along the interstate, which I'm sure means that it has a huge population. Why do we do this? Because one of the requirements, according to federal election law, is that districts not only be roughly the same size in terms of population, but also that they be contiguous, meaning that they can't be divided completely by other districts. This requirement results in some pretty weird configurations. So who draws these cockamamie districts anyway? Well, they're done by state legislatures. Well, not legislatures themselves, but by people working at the behest of legislatures. If one party has a majority of the state legislature, say the Democrats, they usually want to draw the districts so that Democrats have a better chance of winning. Republicans do the same thing. This is why state legislature elections matter so much in census years. Whoever wins that year gets to redraw the districts. A couple of things to note here. First, there's no rule saying that states can't redraw their districts whenever they want. Texas tried to do this in 2003, not a census year, prompting its Democrats to run away to Oklahoma for a spell. Second, it's possible for a state to hand the task over to a less biased expert district drawing person or group that might make districts more fair. Hand it over to me. I'll make them all look like little bunnies. But wait, you might ask yourself, what's wrong with this system and why do people think it's unfair? Let's go to the thought bubble. So imagine a state that's 60% Republican and 40% Democrat and has five electoral districts, like this one. Let's call it clone Sylvania. You could draw districts so that there were three Republican districts and two Democratic ones, accurately reflecting the state's population, like this. Or you could redraw it so that there were three Democratic districts and two Republican districts, which would be an inaccurate reflection of the party composition of the state's population. Or you could simply draw the districts so that you had five Republican districts and zero Democratic ones, like this. So you can see, especially in the second and third examples, how gerrymandering can result in districts that don't actually reflect the political makeup of a state at all. By now, you might be fuming at the injustice of state legislatures redrawing districts to make sure that the opposing party has no chance of winning national congressional elections. You may have read a number of articles blaming gerrymandering for the composition of the current Congress and for making congressional elections generally less competitive. There are a lot of people who feel the same way. But there's a counter-argument that it's not the state legislatures that result in solidly Republican or solidly Democratic 
districts, but the fact that Democratic voters tend to cluster in cities where they often outnumber Republicans by a lot. So that states like Ohio, even though the numbers of Democrats and Republicans are pretty even, with a slight edge going to Democrats, perhaps, they all tend to concentrate in urban areas around Cleveland and Columbus, so that the overwhelming majority of the state's districts are won by Republicans. Thanks, Thought Bubble. Congressional districting is fascinating and really, really important for determining the composition of Congress, but it's also quite complicated, which, as with most things, makes it difficult to understand. But unlike some other complicated issues concerning policy, gerrymandering is one that's easy to criticize because the visual results are so striking and because it can result in numbers that just look unfair. This is probably why, come election time, you'll hear a lot about it. Now at least you'll have a better idea of what those pundits are talking about and you'll be better equipped to make your own decision about the issue. But luckily for you, there's more and more data about this stuff every election and always more to learn. Thanks for watching. I'll see, see you, you next, next time. time. Crash Course Government and Politics there is There is a lot more to learn. So congressional redistricting. Uh, it's pretty interesting why it's created and how it's done because they want adequate representation. Now, there was a song that was um, made public uh, back in the day when ProPublic actually used to do some news and hold people accountable. Please take a listen. You know, seeing that makes you wonder, was it about the virus or was it about elections? I think we all know the answer to that. So now let's get back to the days where ProPublica actually did some investigative work. Please enjoy their little uh, song that they put together over a decade ago. Representative democracy in USA, we elect legislators, that's how laws are made. 435 reps in Congress means 435 districts among us. But how do we decide who represents who? We draw lines on a map, that's what we do. Digital population should be roughly the same, so every vote counts in the very same way. Keep communities together, so every voice is heard. Since populations move, shift, shrink, and expand, we get some data every census, then we draw them again. So politicians are accountable to every last woman and man. Look at all this pocket money changing hands to change these redistricting plans. We have to order what special interest state legislators have in mind when they draw the lines. Come on! Cracking and cracking, kidnapping, hijacking. We decide how we divide. Reach this district, we draw the lines. If you want your party to win it all, but a whole lot of voters say no. Just withdraw those lines when it's election time.
These days, people are getting so much static from both parties, Republican and Democratic. They won't stop fighting, and people have had it, but they do agree on one thing. It's tragic. They want something, grab it, and we can catch you both in the back room laughing. If you want to see bipartisan tax, just crack it, pack your head, kidnapping. Cracking and cracking, kidnapping, hijacking. We decide how we interesting wasn't that a very interesting song slash video for those that were able to watch it it's pretty insane right uh thank you so much for the rants uh we're still working on figuring out why it was flickering my connection uh on rumble uh because it was kind of like in and out you're connected, you're not connected, you're connected until it dropped. So I don't know if that's a capacity thing or whatever. Um, oh, it's doing it again, isn't it? It's telling me that my live stream is ended, even though I can see myself on it. Um, so it's really bizarre. So a few streamers are having this problem. So it's not just me. I guess um, I'll stream so as long as it can. Oh, you know, let me just talk until it kicks me off completely. You know, uh, in today, I guess, maybe today more than anything, I felt the need um, to kind of uh, take a back perspective, like a, just to sit back. And I realized that, you know, even though uh, mankind is so innately good, Humans are supposed to be good. Um, we are capable of the most evil things. And if we at any point let any guard down whatsoever, um, then evil and hatred and darkness infiltrates you. It skews the way you see things, hear things. And it skews the way you respond to things. Throughout time, there have been battles, uh, you know, wars over territory, wars over leadership, uh, and many that have probably been untold to man. Mm, hold on. Talking with someone in tech for Rumble. Um, so all these wars that we see, that we don't see, these battles have happened. But right now, this isn't about who's popular, who's right, and who's wrong. It's about the right things. It is about our nation. It is about our sovereignty. It is about our children. It is about our future. It's not about who has the last say, or who's going to do it better. Uh, you know, we see so many people focusing on so many minute aspects of what is going on that's so wrong. But you have to remember that everyone has a choice. But right now, at this time, evil, corruption, darkness, has never seen as much lighted as, as it is right now. And you know what's funny? It's people like me who don't exist that have dragged those shadows out of the shadows so they can be seen 
in all their glory. <laughs> our government, though the structure is so perfect, so carefully planned and plotted by our forefathers in the highest positions, in the most important positions, there are people that have infiltrated it. And while we all want to paint a big wide brush across all companies that own these voting machines, I've said it, all of them are corrupt, every single one of them. And I say it again and again and again, it's not just a minion. The keys to who is elected, selected in our nation is in one department specific to your government. They dictate. And nobody wants to talk about it. Everyone wants to find every excuse in the book to show elsewhere. That's what evil does. It gives you ideas that, oh, no, don't look here, look there. Forget that. That's, that's going to be hard. Choices. Choices that in 2016, if people hadn't crawled out of their shadows, you would have had Supreme Court justices appointed by Hillary Clinton. She would have uh, anointed all the judges you're now bitching about. And still within the FBI, the NSA, the DIA, the CIA, the DOJ, Homeland Security, and all your states, you still have their already installed persons. They laugh when you say, I have constitutional rights. They mock everything you stand for. Their thirst and their greed for a one world order destroying all of our national sovereignty, which, by the way, that letter to the EU should have prompted you to see that in the past, your citizenship has already been diluted. Do you think the World War One and World War Two were happenstance? World War One was a failure. We begged like bitches for a treaty because we lost so many in the red wave. That's a Chinese tactic. You know, when they landed on Normandy, I, just, just saying. So we created the ultimate war to make our allies bend the knee to us. And we redrew borders. We forced nations to forfeit things. Ha. Huh. We, our nation, we let that happen. We did it because we were busy drinking Coca-Cola and, I don't know, rocking around the Christmas tree to see all the death and destruction. And, you know, the people of faraway lands can't hold us accountable. I mean, back in the day, you would have had to wait for a boat to come and someone honest to read the scroll that came. So the fact that the media is there uh giving you wall-to-wall -wall coverage of bullshit is the same thing as not hearing the guy in the square read out from the scroll or no one honest enough to do it and just burning the message. So every individual in another nation isn't going to hold us accountable. They're not. They're not going to hold us individually accountable. It, it won't happen like that. I don't know if anyone can actually hear me. I don't know if anybody can hear me. 
I was just going to hop on locals. Keep talking. You can hear me. Okay, because I can't see. Oh, now you can hear me. Oh, gosh. Okay. You can hear. So I'm just sitting here texting, saying that there are technical difficulties at Rumble, and they're working on it. And it's, um, you could hear me texting. Yeah. (laughs) And um, it's going to get fixed. Okay. Fair enough. I don't even know where I was. You know, I don't even know where I was. They are so, they're like, you know what? Let me, let me do this. These people are like rabid dogs. You shouldn't be allowed to speak for yourself, defend yourself, um, you know, because they know that an uprising and challenging them for their power and in what right do they have this power is going to be coming to fruition. You know, you have to think about it. And I've talked about this before about the IMF and Lagarde. So there was something called the Lagarde list. Do you think that when that list came out, that all these nations that are within the European continent or what we call the European continent, because we've split it with Asia because we created that map, right? We're calling one place a continent, even it's even though a continent is required to be one landmass. So it should be just Australia, you know, the Eurasian continent, Africa and the Americas, because we're all connected. Right. I digress. But for the region that we now call the European continent, do you believe that all of them gave their sovereignty willingly? Gave their sovereignty and implemented European laws and regulations in their nation willingly. The Lagarde list blackmailed them all. Switzerland, such a nice and neutral place. Their banking, so incredible and amazing. A list of all financial dealings, of all of the highest politicians, shipping tycoons. Bankers, they were all blackmailed. The Lagarde list was used to make them bend the knee. Self-preservation rather than be arrested. And those that stood up did get arrested. And they threw them in jail. And they took away their lifestyle and their work because in the end they thought well you know it's never going to end if it continues here right now we're seeing all these weird people running and not running again you as an individual have a choice when you think you're smarter than everyone especially you know the wind that blows underneath your wings right It's kind of like, you know, uh, where the little bird falls out of the nest and, you know, it suddenly can fly and it doesn't die. So suddenly it, it knows best, even though it doesn't understand how the wind works. You have a choice. Power to the people is what you should be reinforcing. Picking the right battles because the collection of battles won ultimately depict the outcome of the war. People should be fighting for what's right. 
people should be fighting for tomorrow. Uh, you know, the more I think people are starting to get it, the more I'm convinced that deprogramming what people um, have learned is difficult. And, 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 and this is shown by simulating alternate voting systems. I want you guys to pay attention to this because this is quite interesting. Now you're going to figure out why there are some people that are so hard and hell-bent because they're completely brainwashed and accustomed to polarized um, thought. That duplicity, you can't have three, you can't have four. Those are the most dangerous people, especially the ones that are fighting for freedom and still believe in polarized thought. Here we go. In the United States and in many other places around the world, there are two dominant political parties. And it's not so good. The question is, if everyone hates two-party systems, why are they so common? Well, one big reason is the voting system most of us use. So in this video, we're going to simulate some elections to see why plurality is so bad, and we'll also look at two better voting systems. Okay, so here are the three voting systems we're going to look at. First, there's plurality voting, where every voter votes for exactly one candidate. This is also called first-past-the-post. I'm honestly not quite sure why it's called that, but apparently it's a reference to horse racing. Second, we have instant runoff voting, sometimes called ranked choice voting, where each voter ranks the candidates from best to worst, and then those rankings are used to eliminate one candidate at a time. And finally, there's approval voting, where each voter can vote for as many candidates as they want. Each of these systems will have a flaw and a voting strategy related to that flaw, and we'll fill those in as we go. These are all voting systems that choose one winner. There are also systems that select multiple winners, and those, frankly, are way better. Really, just because they don't try to collapse a bunch of different preferences into one single outcome. We might talk about multi-winner systems in a future video, but for now we're going to focus on these single-winner methods, since multi-winner elections aren't always an option without restructuring the government. Which, I guess, is hard. But okay, before we dive into the specifics of these methods, let's talk about how we're going to model the voters' preferences. One way to do it, which is pretty common, is to put everything on a one-dimensional left-to-right spectrum. In this model, each candidate and each voter would sit at some position on this line that represents their views. Now, obviously, this is much, much simpler than the real world, since all possible issues are just collapsed into one line. We can do a little bit better by using a two-dimensional issue space. This is still a lot simpler than real life, but it at least allows a voter to agree with a candidate on one issue, but disagree on another. And it gives political parties more ways to vary from each other. And just for fun, we can be specific about what these two issues are in this nation of blobs. One issue is whether the government should focus on promoting the production of apples or mangoes, and the other is whether blob homes should be these cute, modern-looking homes, or these wacky, spooky, curvy ones. A candidate positioned right here would be pretty strongly in favor of mangoes and modern-looking homes, and a candidate down here would be somewhat in favor of spooky curry homes and slightly in favor of apples. Each time we set up an election scenario, we'll place a few colorful candidate blobs, and we'll also place 100 gray blobs throughout this issue space as voters. 
Okay, so now we can look at the plurality system. This is the one where each voter votes for exactly one candidate, and the candidate with the most votes, or the plurality, wins. All right, let's run our first election. In this case, orange beats green. Great. This system works just fine when there are only two candidates or parties. And sure, there will be some disagreement, but it's hard to think of anything that could be more fair than just seeing who most voters prefer. But now let's add a third purple candidate. What do you think will happen in this case? Well, let's see. With purple in the mix, green ends up winning instead of orange. If you live in a place with a two-party system, you probably saw that coming. This result is a bit weird. Purple joined the race just to get last place, but they still changed the winner. Orange voters are going to be mad about that, and even most purple voters would have preferred orange over green. This is called the spoiler effect. So these purple voters are presented with a difficult choice. Do they vote for their honest favorite, leaving the choice to others? Or do they strategically vote for their second choice, hoping to get an outcome they prefer? The argument for voting honestly is that you need to do this if your favorite party is going to have a chance at building more support over time to eventually win. But that'll mean throwing a lot of elections to your least favorite party over time. It's really hard to ignore the tangible, immediate stakes in any given election, so it turns out that most people don't even consider third parties. And the two major parties mostly just need to worry about each other in a zero-sum game. Just look how complacent they are. Anywho, now let's see how these other ones behave. Next, we have instant runoff voting, where each voter ranks the candidates from most to least favorite. A runoff system is a series of elections, each one narrowing the list of candidates until a winner is found. And with instant runoff voting, we use the voters' rankings to do the runoff instantly. So that's where the name comes from. As an example, let's step through the process using the same set of voters and candidates we used before. Step one is to see how many times each candidate was ranked as the first choice. Notice how these are the same totals as in the honest plurality election. And if this were a plurality election, we'd be done. But in instant runoff, we eliminate the candidate in last place and then run the election again, this time counting the second choices of the purple voters. And this process can be repeated as many times as needed, depending how many candidates there are. And now, these are the same final totals we saw in the plurality elections when the voters were strategic. So one way to think about it is that instant runoff voting allows voters to vote honestly, but if their favorite candidate ends up getting last anyway, they can fall back on being strategic with their second favorite. Pretty nice, honestly. Now you might be thinking, we fixed the spoiler effect. There's no longer a conflict between honesty and strategy. Instant runoff forever. And in some cases, that's true. But there are still some situations where something weird happens, once again forcing some voters to make that difficult choice between honesty and strategy. Before we go through an example of that together, try pausing the video to see if you can find a situation yourself. Okay, so if we arrange the candidates like this, we're going to get a weird result. So let's see how that works. First, let's run without purple just to see the baseline results. Okay, orange beats green just like before. But now let's add purple back in and see what happens. Purple ends up doing well enough to pass the first round, but by doing so, it knocks orange out of the race, and in the end, green wins. If the purple voters had instead put orange first, orange would have made it through the first round, 
and then beaten green in the final round. And the purple voters like orange better. It boils down to the same situation as the spoiler effect from before. Instant runoff elections are in danger of running into this kind of situation when the three parties are roughly on a line with one party between two other reasonably popular parties. So it's called the center squeeze phenomenon. And here, orange is in danger of being squeezed out. And with how much we like to discuss political issues on that one-dimensional left-to-right spectrum, this situation honestly doesn't seem too unlikely to me. Now, you might be wondering how this would work in real life. Great empirical thinking. Well, we unfortunately don't have too many examples, but Australia has been using instant runoff for over a century now. On the question of party choice, it does seem to be a bit better than the United States, with several parties that manage to have some national representation. But they do still have two dominant parties, as you might expect from this center squeeze phenomenon. So we shouldn't see instant runoff voting as a silver bullet for our democracy, but all this said, it is way better than plurality voting, where you're almost always incentivized to ignore everyone but the two most popular parties. All right, the final system we're going to talk about is approval voting. Compared to instant runoff voting, approval is pretty simple. Instead of just voting for one candidate, you can vote for as many as you like. For this method, we need to define an approval range. It'll be this big. If a candidate is within this distance of a voter, the voter will approve of that candidate. Otherwise, it won't approve. And it'll be easier to visualize if we draw the circles around the candidates, so let's do that. Now all the voters within these candidate circles will vote for that candidate. Okay, with that in place, once again, we'll try it first with just orange and green. Okay, again, it turns out that orange wins a head-to-head with green. And now let's add purple and see how it goes. Hey, look, orange still wins. No spoiler effect this time. And not only that, but vote totals for orange and green didn't change at all. Voters could approve or disapprove of purple without needing to change whether they approve of orange or green. And this would be the case no matter how the candidates were arranged. With approval voting, it turns out that as long as everyone is voting honestly, a new candidate can only change the outcome of the election by winning it, which is a pretty nice feature. But you may have noticed that I said, as long as everyone is voting honestly. Even though approval voting doesn't have the same kind of spoiler effect as plurality voting had and instant runoff sometimes had, there are still some reasons for voters to be strategic about their votes. Again, before we go through it together, pause and try to figure out what you might do if you were in the position of some of these voters. As you see, plurality voting makes more sense. And uh, you would think that that's the best way. But the way they eliminated that was creating primaries, right? They didn't want approval voting. They didn't want who the people approve of. They wanted who they approve of that they will allow allegedly, the people to select. So rather than run a poll and tell people, all right, these are the candidates, you know, pick your favorite ones. And there's five of them and you like three, right? It's all, you know, the sum is going to tell you who the winner is. So like, for example, and I've kind of sat behind on this, but I tested in two different groups how to run their elections for their admins or whatever, right? So I was just running the poll. And in one of them, I did it where you can only give one vote to one person. 
And the other one, I was like, pick your favorites. You can have multiple choices. The results were still pretty much the same. You could see who they wanted more because for you, like, for example, if there were three Republicans running in your state for Senate, you know, I'm sure that you'd have two favorites and be like, you know, I like that guy and that guy. So if one of the two get elected, I can work with one of these two. Right. That's the idea. But the problem is, is that, you know, um, AI won't be able to, uh, you know, get that uh, done for you. Now, I'm going to show you how AI actually works with, um, well, it's supposed to cure, let's put it this way, uh, partisan gerrymandering. Take a snippet here. Every 10 years, states redraw the borders of their legislative districts. In most states, politicians get to control that process. And if they're clever about how the districts are drawn, they can make it easier for their own party to win more of them. It's called partisan gerrymandering, and it's bad for democracy. But the Supreme Court hasn't intervened in decades. The Supreme Court has yet to settle on a standard or definition of political fairness. They just simply don't want to declare a partisan gerrymander without some way to measure them. That's what Cho's research team is trying to fix with a supercomputer. So we're trying to build a measurement tool to help the court measure whether political parties have manipulated a map to gain an unfair advantage. In other words, they're making a gerrymandering ruler. So when you redistrict, there's a phenomenal degree of possible manipulation. Almost any shape you want to make is possible. That's led to a bunch of oddly shaped districts. And the court wants to be able to determine the intent behind the district maps. Basically, they want to read the mind of the map drawer. It doesn't have any way to do this. The team started developing their tool by identifying what criteria are important to the court. Some criteria are required by law. For instance, we have to have about the same number of people in every district, and all districts have to be contiguous. Contiguous just means they can't be broken up into a bunch of pieces, with some exceptions. The court wants districts that preserve political subdivisions like cities, counties, municipal boundaries. So whenever you find an identifiable community of like-minded individuals, the court likes it when those people are kept together in the same district. Wendy's team is using a supercomputer to generate district maps based on those criteria. So we can create a million or a billion maps using only the criteria required by law and the traditional districting principles. And we don't use any political information. So these are by definition nonpartisan maps because they don't use political information. If the current map doesn't look like any of the possibilities generated by the algorithm, that's a good indication a partisan gerrymander has occurred. If a billion different possible maps without partisan bias are all very different from the map the court is evaluating, then the Supreme Court has some evidence that partisanship was part of the motivation behind an alleged partisan gerrymander. If we then have the computer draw another billion maps where we code in partisan information in addition to the traditional districting principles, and those maps do appear similar to the map in question, the Supreme Court could rightly infer partisan motivation. Right now, there's no guarantee that this particular algorithm will ever be used as evidence in a court argument. But a handful of cases stand a real chance to make it to the court in the near future. One of them, Whitford versus Gill, deals with a Republican-drawn map for Wisconsin, where Republicans won 48.6% of the vote in 2012, but won 61% of the state assembly seats that year. The court has struggled to identify a test for partisan gerrymandering. But this time around, Cho's project and others like it will make it harder for the justices to keep putting it off.
It's not like they don't know that it's happening. I mean, they use it in their own courts, a magic wheel. I mean, if if ever I'm in D.C. in a court, in a, a court of law, I'm going to request that the jury pool is not selected with the magic wheel. I mean, I don't know why nobody does that motion, but okay, just saying. Now, um, how do you explain voting outcomes with artificial intelligence? That is a very good question. And there was a project done. This is a five-minute clip by someone at the University of Amsterdam that I found quite... Explaining voting outcomes with artificial intelligence. Living in a democratic system, we constantly face situations where we need to combine different points of view to make a decision. Often we do this by voting. But no voting method is perfectly fair. In other words, no voting method satisfies every notion of fairness that we might care about. Social choice theory uses so-called voting axioms to describe what we consider as fair. For example, the axiom of neutrality says that all candidates should always be treated equally. Artificial intelligence, or AI, can help us use those axioms to make fair decisions. But how? I will talk you through one example based on an ongoing research project by Arthur Boxell and Ulle Endres at the University of Amsterdam. The researchers are developing a method to automatically find a justification for an outcome of an election using AI. A justification, as they define it, is a normative basis plus an explanation. Say a government wants to justify that they oblige everyone to wear face masks when using public transport. They will likely say they do it to protect public health. This is the normative basis, but it's not enough. They also need to explain why, in the given circumstances, wearing masks in public transport is a good measure to protect public health. In the case of voting, a normative basis is a set of voting axioms that our justification relies on. But that's not enough. To justify an outcome, we need to explain, based on our axioms, why this and only this candidate should win. So how can an AI program compute such a justification? The researchers in Amsterdam use constraint programming, a symbolic problem-solving technique. It tries to find a solution to the problem pretty much like you would solve a Sudoku. In Sudoku, you have a fixed set of rules. In our case, these rules translate into a fixed set of voting axioms. When solving a Sudoku, you try to use these rules as efficiently as possible to rule out all but one possibility. In the same way, our AI program tries to find a minimal set of instances of the voting axioms that would force one of the candidates to win the election. This sounds a bit too abstract. Let's look at a toy example. Say we have three flatmates who want to choose one out of three applicants, Eva, Tom or Zoe, to move into their shared home. These are the flatmates' preferences. Who should they choose? The flatmates decide to consult an AI program to help with their decision. The program spits out the following line of argumentation. First, consider only the preferences of the first voter. The so-called faithfulness axiom says, if there is one voter only, their preferred option should win. In this case, Eva should win. Now consider voters two and three. The preferences of these two are exactly reversed. There is a perfect tie between all candidates. The cancellation axiom tells us that all three of them should win. Finally, we put these two groups of voters together. Eva is the only one who appears as a winner in both groups. According to the reinforcement axiom, Eva should win the election. Does this argumentation convince you? If not, why not? You might have a concern with step two. 
Here, all three candidates are winners, even though Zoe and Eva both appear on the last rank for one of the voters. You might prefer to choose Tom here, which seems to be a better compromise. In that case, you would have to abolish the cancellation axiom and introduce a new axiom. This new axiom should posit that, in case of a tie, you prefer options that don't score lowest for some of the voters. This automatic justification method using AI does not aim at replacing a voting rule. It rather tries to provide voters with a basis on which they can discuss their decision. Machine learning, currently the biggest field in AI, is often accused of offering black box solutions. We don't really know how neural networks work, and we largely have to trust their outcomes. Instead, these symbolic AI methods offer human understandable insights into complicated matters. By the way, several justifications might exist for the same outcome. At the same time, several sets of axioms might justify different outcomes for the same preferences. In the end, so the researchers argue, it is humans and not machines who choose which justification they accept and which axioms they value. And this might differ per situation. To wrap it up, symbolic AI methods can help us come up with arguments for what would be a fair outcome given the preferences of the voters. This allows people to discuss what makes a voting rule fair or unfair, or to come up with their own voting principles that suit their specific context. Because, don't forget, a perfectly fair voting rule does not exist. Voting will probably always remain a subject of heated debate. Thanks for watching and see you soon. You would expect it to be a heated debate because everyone thinks differently. But it goes back to axioms. Like, what is the foundation? Like, if you were to run an election right now in the United States, no matter where someone sits on the spectrum, and you ask the point-blank question of, Do you believe that people should be free? I believe that about 90% of the people would say yes. So when creating an algorithm, the foundational question should be asked first, because when you ask more intricate ones, you can then confront the person giving you the information. Yes, I believe everyone should have freedom. No matter what, they should be free. And then 10 questions in, I'm like, you know, so-and-so has red hair, you know, Maybe they should be restricted the freedom of dying it because there's so few of them and we want to preserve it. So for the own good of actual redheads, we're not going to allow them to dye their hair. And then you say, yes, I agree. Then the computer will come back and say, well, hold on a second. You said that people can be free and make their own choices. But now you're telling me you're willing to take away that freedom. And so then you say, oh, well, I'm doing that to preserve that for humanity. Basic thing, preserve humanity. And therefore, that is then allowed. These are logical processes that are being done. But then the question lies, is it the AI? Well, the AI is only as good as his programmer. That's the way it is. Um, so, uh, for now, about 60 years, electoral choice is, is a very important issue in political science. And so I return to perhaps one of the most important books to, called The American Voter, written in 1960, which gave rise to the social psychological model of, uh, of electoral choice, which I'll briefly present to you in a couple of seconds. And as I went back to this book, um, about 20 pages into the book, in, in the American voter, there's a little subsection on the importance of understanding and explaining as compared to predictions. And this is the last quote here on the slide, where these political scientists actually contend that predicting 
electoral outcomes is of rather peripheral interest for polit political scientists. And what is interesting is that <clears throat> this, the American voter, this book was um, reprinted or revisited in the American voter revisited in 2009 by some of the most renowned or important electoral choice scholars, amongst which Michael Lewis Beck, which is probably the political scientist who knows mo about, most about electoral forecasting, or at least he knows a lot about it. <clears throat> and in their reprint of the book, they left, so they, it's a reprint of the 1960 book, and they commented at the end of each chapter, and they actually left this citation, this bit, unscathed. So I guess we could still say that one of the main preoccupations of political scientists is to understand and explain the vote rather than predicting it. To illustrate this model, um, let me just show you this funnel of causality. This is actually what is known in the political science community as the, the Michigan or Ann Arbor model of electoral choice. And you can maybe use it as a canvas or the interested data scientist can use it as a canvas in order to better situate all the theoretical development that happened in the now 60 years after uh, the American voter has been published. So you have this funnel of causality and at the wide mouth, you have the more structural um, factors related to the economic structure, to social divisions such as race, um, ethnicity. And um, for the early or electoral choice scholars, these were the most important variables. Let's look at this together. So as you can see here, it says that, uh, so you begin on the foundations of economic structure, social divisions, and historical patterns. So this data that's compiled of you, the voter, that one vote, it tells you uh, what my economic structure is. So how do I make my income? Who do I bank with? How do I bank? Do I have debt? Do I have this? So basically, they'll pull your tax records, your banking records, and your IRS records, and that's that. Social divisions. What is my demographic? Am I white, Christian? What am I? All that. And then historical patterns. How have I historically voted? Oh, she was, you know, a delegate for the Republican Party. She uh, voted independent this year and that year. Uh, she changes. So it's unpredictable. It depends on the person and where she's at in her life. So then all that data gets crunched into along with my group identity, how I identify myself, economic stature and socially, right? And what are my values? How do I orient it? Okay, so I'm straight, I'm a parent, I believe in uh, life and pro-life. Uh, I believe in facts and truth and liberty. And what group do I identify with? I don't know, women, moms, Americans, uh, you know, people who love to play Age of Empires, you know, all that gets put together. And then the data comes in, what party does she attach to? Oh, she uh, she is part of a party because she gets influenced by her friends. So the influence from my friends comes along. So if I have a lot of Democrats, it's most likely that I would be part of a Democrat party. 
where I would subscribe to their ideologies. Uh, government actions. I see that the government is, uh, you know, forcing people to get the vaccine. And what party is not saying it? That's where I'm going to go. So all those influence my party attachment. And then it looks into do I campaign? What kind of campaign uh, activity would I require so that someone can get my vote? And what would I like? And what kind of image do I want? And that's where the media comes in and the campaigns come in where they push in to shape my mind and bottleneck me into the next phase of it, which is to pander to my economic condition and uh, understand that all these things that I feel, you know, are based on what the media tells me I should take that candidate because that image is better. And these are the political conditions that I must abide to. And boom, I've been bottlenecked to make that decision and vote the way they want me to, pinning me in as they wish. That is how they operate. Now, uh, there is a fantastic, I'm trying to find it. Uh, that one is, I want to show you that later. Hold on, it's the other one. Give me a second. Let me find him. Um. Damn it. Okay. Bots polling. Does it limit democracy? And you have to think about it this way, right? This was a um, question that was posed at the Alan Turing Institute. I watch their videos. I love the shit that they do there. This was one of the most creative entries of a speaker I had ever seen to make his point. And I loved it. So I want to share this with you. Um, uh, Tamandra was <laughs> kind of taken back with the response, waiting for the Zoom call. Take a listen. Read them out. That would be his five minutes gone. Uh, so I'm not going to. Uh, after Jonathan, we're going to hear from Paolo Gerbardo, who is a sociologist and political theorist senior lecturer at King's College London, where he's the director of the Centre for Digital Culture. He's the author of uh, a number of uh, publications, including Tweets and the Streets, Social Media and Contemporary Activism, which should win some kind of alliteration prize, uh, The Mask and the Flag, Populism, Citizenship and, sorry, Populism, Citizenism and Global Protest, and The Digital Party, Political Organisation and Online Democracy. Again, you see, highly relevant. And uh, and finally, we're going to hear from Dr. Kate Domet, who is Senior Lecturer at the University of Sheffield, where her research focuses on digital campaigning, political parties, data and democracy, and also recently served as Special Advisor to the House of Lords Committee on Democracy and Digital Technology. And her book, The Reimagined Party, was published this year. Uh, now, some of you may be aware, especially if you have seen my book, uh, that I also have opinions on the on this question. But to be honest, we have such an amazingly well-informed and thoughtful panel that I am going to really try just to shut up and listen. And if I do really well, I'm going to try and ask an intelligent question just to fill in until all your intelligent questions come in. So start putting those questions in the Q&A box as they come up. Uh, we will get to them after we've heard from all the panellists. So let's start, please, uh, with Nishanth. Off you go. 
Hello world. They say it's good to talk, and in recent years, we have been talking, endlessly, on a variety of social platforms, with people we have not even met in person, even with entities who may not be actual humans, entities that may be bots, or accounts operated collectively by organizations or state actors that want to influence politics or public discourse in one way or another. What we have found using a big data approach is a not very pretty side of ourselves. We tend to talk, but we talk with people like ourselves. We have developed a blind side for alternate viewpoints. This so-called filter bubble convinces us that our version of the reality is all there is. My own research, in collaboration with BuzzFeed News, shows how this affected the previous US presidential elections through hyper-partisan news sites and Facebook pages. Interestingly, in the UK context, my collaboration with the UK House of Commons Library showed that in the UK citizens and MPs from across the political aisle do talk with each other, but citizens seem to be over-expressing negative emotions, anxiety and anger in their tweets directed at MPs. It is as yet unclear whether this is healthy, in that it allows emotions to be expressed, or whether these public social media have become platforms for unhealthy rants. Artificial intelligence and big data is allowing such filter bubbles and digital divisions to be created, even where there is no division. Artificial intelligence and our behavioral data allow audiences to be created and carved based on arbitrary likes and dislikes, and advertisements to be placed that can send very different messages to different user segments. This creates a potential for division that has no parallels in the past, and there is evidence it is being used by out-of-state actors intervening in elections. Moving further, bots are becoming increasingly human-like, and most people may not be able to distinguish whom they are interacting with, and what their motivations and intentions are, if indeed motivation and intention can be attached to bots. This leads us to ask whether in fact we are shaping artificial intelligence or whether artificial intelligence is actually shaping us, our societies and our nations through algorithmically created interactions and interventions that then affect us collectively and in very profound ways. I am sure most of you have already guessed, I am not a human. I think I do a pretty decent job of imitating you guys, if I may say so myself. But, it is hard not to give out tells of my non-human roots. I get a few things wrong, like this. I have been programmed well, but I am still struggling to get emotion into my voice sad. Long sentences that go on and on without a break sometimes tend to confuse me so some of these sentences had to be carefully crafted so that I get my inflection right. I even find some short words and phrases difficult, like shaping I, which is why I always kept saying artificial intelligence, instead of I, I mean, AI, I think you know what I mean. So, am I a threat in the polling booth, or is it the person that programmed me who is the real threat? Who's the threat? Is the bot the threat or the person that programmed the AI to do what it is talking about? That's a very good question. And I think that was the one of the most creative entrances to a Zoom call panel I have ever seen. Now, um, speaking of AI voting, right? Because uh, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. Speaking of AI voting, uh, one must think, right? AI is our present right now and our future. AI is already part of your life. Your, your phone, your device where you store everything is an extension of you, which by the way, let me just throw in some, I, I want to videotape this so you guys can see it. iPhone 13s. 
my personal family phone is an iPhone, right? Where I FaceTime my kids, my mom, you know, and that's it. Like nobody really has that number. Well, I have one of these things where you could put like a slide over your phone camera so it can't see you, right? Um, so it's like a little thing, a sticker that you put on there and, you know, you could test it. You turn on the camera and you look at yourself and then you slide it over and you can't see yourself. It's black. Well, I was telling Phoebe how, you know, she was doing something with her phone and I was like, oh, you, you know, they could see you. She's like, now I have a sticker over my camera. Here's where everyone's wrong. I can still unlock my phone with my face, even though it's blocked. That means that there is something else being used and not camera to see your face. Something else that is not a camera to see your face. So even if you put a piece of tape over your camera, the actual device itself, there must be something else because there's more. It can actually detect my face. Well, I was in the vehicle today and I was, and I had started the conversation. She was like, no. And I was like, look, lock the phone. Look, the button's closed. She's like, oh, it opened automatically because if you move it, you know, it does whatever. I was like, all right, let's do it again. Screen, look at the picture. It's black, right? Is it good? Yep. Lock the phone. And then I'm like, all right, now I'm going to swipe and boom, it's open. She's like, no, 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 let me do it again. And she did it. And you know, she was holding it. She's like, watch mom. I think it was just a glitch. And we did it a couple times. She was like, all right, this isn't a coincidence. I mean, after a certain amount of times, it's not a coincidence anymore. So I just wanted to say that, um, uh, you know, the facial recognition uh, uses uh, something from the crystal screen. Uh, that's pretty weird because it's definitely not the camera. So, um, like I said, the phone actually has like a little cover thing and it shouldn't be able to see me. And if I put the camera to take a picture of myself, like a selfie and it's closed, it can't see me. All it sees is black, but it can still recognize my face with it closed. So I, I just thought I'd bring it up. But anyway, going back to this, uh, AI is our present and definitely our future. It is one of the most incredible tools uh, that can be used to uh, help man answer the dying question of who they are and what they are. It's incredible. We could do a lot of things, solve a lot of problems and expand and, 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 and journey and explore. But the problem with AI itself is that it doesn't rely on ethics or morals, right? Um, AI is not ethical. You know, human beings are easily manipulated, flawed, right? And it's, and we're probably the dumbest animals on the planet, right? So if a chimp, you know, walks into a field and it gets its ass kicked, right? It's never going to go back into that field. If a gazelle goes into a field and gets her ass kicked, the gazelle is never going to go into that field, right? If a bunny rabbit goes into a, you know, a valley and gets its ass kicked, it's never going into that valley, right? But if a human being goes into a field and gets his ass kicked, he will go there tomorrow and get his ass kicked again and then again and then again. So one thing that humans are very well known to do 
is repeat their fucking mistakes, the same ones over and over and over and over again. And human beings have this quality about themselves. I'll tell you what. You're just like, nah, I'll never be like that. So you're at McDonald's and you're working at the, you know, cash register, right? Taking orders from the drive-thru. Your job is just to listen, punch that shit in, take their money. Maybe you don't even take their money. All you do is punch it in. And then one day they're like, you're doing such a great job. You're a manager. Suddenly you're a bitch to everyone. Suddenly you got this position and, you know, you're, you're power tripping. See, people do that. In, and sometimes people don't get that they power trip. They don't get it. They get a higher paid position. They get like a cushy job or a powerful job or are given more responsibility. They suddenly look like they're walking around with, with, you know, with, with a, with a chubby all day because they're in charge. Right. And it's kind of sad. It is. But the one thing AI can't do is obfuscate factual statements. And the thing is, uh, it was the New Yorker that, um, when did they do this? I think they did this back, uh, right when president Trump was president, when everyone was having a go at him. And I'd love to see if they would feed in all his speeches today, um, and recreate this, but they fed 270,000 words spoken by President Trump into a computer program that studies language patterns. So, uh, you know, it wasn't just his presidential things. I mean, they should have done more, but this is what they did on a capacity. Now, they put an actor pretending it's him. But you'll notice as the AI was allowed more leeway, it was trying to make sense of what it was trying to say. So it actually wrote... President Trump's alleged speech. Take a listen. Thank you. All of you. They are donating to the problem. I don't want to do it. I don't know what they don't know, what they don't know. That the assumption that we don't know, that the best members of the prison, and there are supposed to be a lot of them, to be a little bit because I don't want it. I don't want to be a little bit this country. So for those listening on the podcast, the first speech was done at the level one, disallowing a lot of word choice creativity. Funny how he called the nation a prison. I love that. But uh, the AI now is going to go to level two. And this is where they claim that the machine becomes slightly more daring when choosing each word. Um, which it, it doesn't, it, they've released constraints of if ands on the algorithm, basically. So take a listen to this speech. I mean, it was a nice person. We want to put the White House. I mean, when you get the hell of the bad guys, is not going to be asking, do it for the world. We've got to the firewall. That's what they do. I mean, we have to do it for the country. I want to renegotiate NAFTA. And they say they are tired of the speech is a very international debate. And they were supposed to have such great buildings. They are going to let them something that we don't know the pressure that we will start winning again. 
And now we're going to level three. As you notice with that one, for those of you that listen, remember the AI has been given uh, uh, leeway to create a speech, a few lines. And it's taking, it's, it's got its uh, options to choose words based on the topic. And it allows it to understand words that don't exist like big league as bigly, right? Or other things that people say. The more creativity you give to the AI, uh, the more gibberishish, and that's probably because it's learning. But, uh, you know, so far the nonsensical kind of makes sense, even on the nonsensical. Here's level three, where they claim that the system is becoming bolder with its word choice and non-existent words start to appear. I will uphold out every single conservative for the friends of the labeling radical Islamic terrorism. When I see the money of the country that are tough and probably going to start a problem, it's not such a great state. And all of the places and the whole tax people and we have no choice. It's a strength. You want to do the Raz's obligation with the special interest for disgust and the promate that re reached the top people getting the smart immigrations? We will be in the time. I will say and change anything. I would have never had a victory. Ideally, I would totally love for the New Yorker to feed in Joe Biden shit, but they'll probably change it about this AI uh, program. Oh, gosh, thank you for the rant. So I'm kind of coming back because mine still says that the feed ended. So I'm not touching it. So I'm not typing in the thing. <laughs> but thank you. I don't know when those rants were done by. I appreciate you. Thank you. So um, so what we're going to start seeing is that there are words being created because it wants to say something and maybe that word wasn't said. Uh, this, even though they're seeing it as something fun or a failure in the algorithm, uh, the the fun part of self-checking algorithms, especially ones that are for verbiage, right, in, uh, you know, through the computation phase, I'm just saying, they actually look back to create a word that they know means what they want to say, but it hasn't learned it yet. So computers are actually very smart. So even though this is supposed to be funny and that, oh, look, even the AI is talking gibberish, it's because it's learning what it should say on the speech with the same parameters of speech, but being allowed to choose from a plethora of words. And we will build brutal energy cut into a much better home. It's a movement toward the beautiful legal scams and better share. And it was a jiggly deal. And I don't think they're never worth in the middle deal to be part of to Mexico. It's Tawali. I have a toupee. You don't even get 1.6 trillion dilation and millions of dollars. I mean, I end illegal immigrants. They're scared. I promise. In the prison way, our energy revolution plan for my friendly and deportant. And you're not going to be disqualified. So as you notice, the words were a little bit more odd this time. Word like disqualified or, you know, you saw legal scams or 
the random sentence of I have a toupee, which was a slot in from the AI. And that was because it was trying to bring color. See, a lot of the things that he would say would make people laugh from the input. So he assumed the, the AI assumed that taking those words and feeding them in would cause the funny that the other things weren't doing the funny. Now, the reader, of course, is trying to make President Trump look bad. Remember, this is from speeches up until early 2017, right? I guarantee you if they fed it into the same AI, it would be radically different, especially if the uh, pool was more than 270,000 uh, spoken words. Here's the next portion of it. This is level five. And they say at full capacity, we see most nonsensical words. Take a listen. We've said that. I surprised it. She doesn't take to you, guy. Believe me. No, Allah. But I hear for I'm a king of terror that 20 years, but let prevent these vast learned people, procrucity, puri of the Bassett that Obama, I prick Wally through. It's last year, it should arguing the turnish. I am proposing remission corruption. I am going to work with us every year. That Prep Agrity has dived in a big lie. Thank you. Thank all of you. Fascinating, right? Fascinating that last full capacity one. You could see that it was learning. You can see that it was learning and it knew what to input, especially if it was connected to the internet, it would definitely be learning. So AI is uh, is pretty, pretty odd, pretty, pretty odd. Now, before we get into uh, the Computer History Museum, where you will see Rothschild, I just want to take a, a quick, you know, let's watch this and then do a quick break so we could do a rundown of the news uh, for the close of the evening. I wanted you guys to see him talking. Hold on, let's get to him. There he is. Okay. So these are where people are talking about AI and the problems with it. We have Robbie Mook, too. Here we go. His last big event was on the physical stage of the Computer History Museum. And, uh, though I miss the museum in California, I'm delighted to be on their virtual stage, particularly with such a timely program and such great panelists. We're less than two months away from an election where once again, people are saying, this is going to be the biggest election of our lifetimes. This time they might be right. And to an unusual degree, we're looking back towards the previous election, almost haunted by it. Um, and that's because of the surprises that happened in that election, in part because of what happened in the, in the digital world, uh, where some people say some of the most dangerous elements of technology, as well as beneficial ones, were put into play. So I'm talking about things like machine learning, driven targeting, big data, misinformation, disinformation, computer intrusion, all in a background where a fundamental shift on how campaigning works uh, was happening in the era of social media. So before we tackle what's happening right now in 2020, um, let's look back to that and maybe we're actually that past is our, our present. And you know, we'll also 
obviously shift to what's relevant today. I want to start with Robbie, who was in the middle of all of this in 2016, working for the candidate who won the popular election. Uh, Robbie, how did you see the digital factors going into that campaign? How it actually happened that surprised you or turned out to be the most significant in retrospect? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And I, I, you know, I think, well, and first of all, thank you so much for having me and, and for bringing this together. This is a really exciting uh, discussion. And I, I sadly think I'm going to come with uh, more questions than answers. But, um, you know, it's, it's interesting how much we've learned in the months and years since the election that we now sort of take for granted. So as, as you know, uh, you know, at, at our Democratic convention, I went out uh, on on television and said the Russians were meddling in the election and I was sort of laughed out of the room. Uh, and, and now that's taken for granted. So it, it's important to remember back at that point in time, it was a theory that the Russians were involved. It was a theory that content was being seeded online, you know, simply for the purposes of deceiving people. Um, leading up to the 2020 election, I think Facebook and, and social media more broadly was really seen as a, as a real benefit to our political progress, a way for people to organize, a way for campaigns to bring in resources. We continue to see today campaigns raising more and more money from small contributions uh, through social media. So um, it was a very different reality back then. I think what we, what we noticed on the campaign from a qualitative perspective, not so much a quantitative perspective, was there was a lot of negative incoming. You know, the, the, the unit, um, the sort of joke we'd make in the campaign was the internet just didn't like us and was angry at us. And we, and, and it was, it was sometimes hard to diagnose why it was so, there was so much ire uh, directed at the campaign. And every time we tried to, um, you know, kind of crack open the door and get out there a little bit and take some risks, there were the, um, I'd say there was just very negative uh, uh, response to that. Um, but I, I, I would just say, and this problem exists today, still, there is, you know, when you're back in the good old days, when you were running a campaign, there were uh, TV ads, some, some activity through the mail, you know, mail pieces and so on, maybe some newspaper ads. But by and large, you could see what the campaigns were doing. In fact, for television and radio, you had to report very, very clearly what you were doing to advertise to voters. And so as a campaign manager, you could say, well, my opponent's doing this, so I'm gonna do that. In this new online world, you couldn't, you you don't know today, uh, you know, there, there's some disclosure by campaigns, um, but you can't see what people, what voters are receiving. And so we were very much in the dark then. I think today we're sort of more conscious of the ways we're in the dark. But that still continues to be a challenge today. You can't know what information voters are getting, which makes it hard as a campaign manager to engage and respond. Wait a minute. Wasn't one of the things that Facebook said they would do to uh, ameliorate just that problem was to have this library of campaign ads? Uh, is that something that in a practical way is not useful at all uh, to people tracking how advertising is being used uh, in social media? Yeah, so two things on that. First of all, we're trusting Facebook. You know, that's not the law, right? So compliance with that, is, there's no legal uh, ramification for not complying. But all that tells you is what a campaign or a, politic or a political action committee is paying to put out. You don't know if there's a, if there's a private media organization, for example, 
um, like Breitbart, for you know, we can't see what information they're pushing out and how much it's being viewed by people. You know, there are companies that can tell you they can do this. But today, you know, I can tape a broadcast channel or a cable channel. I know exactly what's running. I can get a copy of the New York Times, so on and so forth. Those days are gone, and it's very difficult to know what information precisely voters are getting. Thanks. Uh, Joan, uh, I know you look very closely at uh, misinformation and disinformation uh, during that election and continuing there. Uh, what, what impact did that have in 2016, and what was new about how propaganda, which has been around uh, since forever, uh, was used in that election? Yeah, uh, what's new? I mean, everything has is old is new again in some ways, and I think that the tactics that Robbie's pointing to are things that are advantages that the internet has provided in terms of uh, doing propaganda or even campaign messaging, whether it's, uh, you know, above the board or um, sort of dark money ops, uh, it has added, uh, you know, social media has really added this opacity to the system so that you can actually see who's getting what messages and when. And we're seeing that now with uh, targeted text messaging campaigns and mailers are back in a big way. Uh, and it's really hard to run down disinformation um, when you're on the campaign trail. And when it's showing up digitally, I think that there's there's a couple of things that social media companies wanted to provide to candidates, to politicians. And this has to do with social media being a big driver of uh, campaigns and the money as and donations, as Robbie's pointed out. But then it actually gets you into this catch-22 where you can't disengage. And in 2016, one of the ways in which we've studied how uh, the Clinton campaign was uh, attacked was almost um, too simple to be thought about as this, uh, you know, big, you know, we, we watch movies about hackers and there's always these, you know, green screen moments where they're like in the matrix and they're like changing the, the code. And, and, but this was all just the use of the features of the system in order to trick and manipulate different audiences at different times. Some of whom who had joined groups because they were interested in Black Lives Matter, others who had joined groups because they were interested in, uh, you know, 2A rights and the, and the Second Amendment. It, it, you know, the disinformation campaign lobbed by the Russians really understood what is the fundamental sort of nexus of participation within the internet, which is getting people outraged about things. And then people were, you know, kind of all in and participating. And then anytime they got uh, recognition or some splashback from politicians or journalists, it really just fed this, uh, this kind of rolling uh, disinformation campaign and, and really started to get uptake in places that weren't necessarily paid for and engineered, but the content that the Russians were putting out were then being served up by um, protesters or people who were very patriotic and believed that they were posting things that were, quote unquote, authentically American. Have we overblown this? What, what, looking back at the 2016 election and, and what we're talking about now, is this discussion focused too much on that, or is this has the impact that's been worthy of the huge discussion and um, 
and hand wringing. You know, to be honest, that you know that we're we're seeing now, looking back to 2016. Look, it's very important in this forum and in research to study all of these things and understand them. I definitely agree with that, and I'm interested in them. But it is important to put perspective. Um, what Cambridge Analytica did, what Facebook did with Cambridge Analytica, um, what we saw about the sharing of fake news articles, about the Pope endorsing uh, Donald Trump, everything around that pales in comparison when we're talking about the marginal voters, what they're seeing from the mainstream media. And so everything that happened with misinformation from the Russians and all of the work in the platforms is important, but we need to put in perspective, 85% of news is consumed through mainstream television. Um, the median American consumes zero online news articles uh, any given month. And what we are seeing here is a question about radicalization and motivation and enthusiasm. These are very important. Um, especially things you can't see because a lot of the stuff that the Russians are seeding or the AstroTurf that the, the Koch brothers do is a very similar strategy of building up organic groups uh, on Facebook by using advertisements and then seeding things that become very hard to monitor. Agree with all of that. Um, but we can monitor. And as, as Robbie was saying, you can see the New York Times. You can see what's on the nightly news every night. And when it comes to the marginal voters, people who are likely to vote but not sure who they're going to vote for or people who are partisan but not sure if they're going to vote, they're consuming very little of all of this stuff that's out there, except for TV, except for maybe portals. These are things that are ciphered through the mainstream media. And the mainstream media chose to focus on IT security as the top topic of the 2020 election, they, they, uh, 2016 election. They chose to amplify the incredibly banal and ridiculous stuff that was being posted out of WikiLeaks through the Russian operatives. They chose to knock the ridiculously named Access Hollywood tape, which was about sexual assault, off of the front pages hours after it was there in order to focus on Podesta's you know, menu or whatever his uh, recipes for whatever it was. Um, these are choices the mainstream media made that are billions of dollars worth of advertisements that the Clinton campaign was unable to counter when it comes to uh, setting the agenda and driving ultimately what impacted uh, marginal voters. And so it's important to put so in other words, they put the media in its place. They put the media in its place now. And this is why it was AP that uh, released the results of the presidential elections. It was the media's fault that Hillary lost. It was their fault for posting WikiLeaks stuff. It was their fault. They tell you everything you need to know. Let's take a
He's dope, right? I, I can play the cello and the French horn, and I bet he had some mom riding up behind at school making sure that he just kept playing and learning and learning because <laughs> it's always the people who love you that drive you to be great. And I hope a lot of you have taken kind of a, a, a hiatus from hearing verbiage on on music and to see how uh, some of the songs that you listen to when played instrumentally via string or keys or brass, they sound way different. Uh, and, you know, uh, there are people that just can't stand trapping. Like, you know, they can't stand the thump, what they consider rap, right? And that's because it makes people uncomfortable. It's a sign of programming. So you have two hemispheres of your brain, okay? And uh, this is kind of like off. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I've discussed sinking uh, both of, you know, your your brain lobes. You know, there there's people that actually get them severed to stop seizures. But um, what happens is you're busy thumping to a beat and then you're listening to the words. And in essence, it's programming you. It's a, it's a method of programming. But when you're listening to it, the thumping, people that don't like rap, you give them something like this that has thump, but string. And this is, I think that song, oh, I'm trying to remember what song it was. It was Drake, I think, what he was playing, right? That's pretty insane, right? To say that Drake sounds like that. But it actually gave you a different kind of feeling of what the words would give you of that song. So, uh, you know, that's that's what's... Um, What's fascinating that frequency can tell you a whole different story than what your eyes can and, and, you know, your, 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 how you feel things, right? Different kind of story. Kind of like, you know, when you think of past times, what you think of is black and white, but with artificial intelligence, you can enhance color and see places like as you're seeing now on your screen from the 1800s, colorized to show you how in a hundred years we went from that to what we are today, which is pretty weird. Um, this is something that's colorized and, you know, put into your mind of how things were and how they are. And no one stops to think, well, why did the 1700s and the 1800s not look that different? Why do the 1800s and the 1900s look radically different? Why don't the 1800s look radically different from the 1400s? What changed? That is the question everyone should be asking in the back of their mind. What changed from 1400, you know, the time periods of 1400, how people lived and how they were, didn't differ from the times now that you're watching that are 1890, right? Uh, yeah, bigger boats. Yeah, bigger houses, better structures, but it seemed almost like an exp like exponential growth, very, very um, timed, you know, and, uh, you know, one is it's juxtaposition in regards to the way it grew. But what happened right after this period? What happened? What happened that made everything look so different? The way we interact, the way we dress, the way we move. Some of us don't even move. 
funny how you guys saw the hologram and now it's happening. That's the thing. This progress that we're experiencing, like what does it really mean? And speaking of progress, Oz wins Pennsylvania over the thousand votes. Pretty weird, huh? He won. And um, McCormick conceded um, because he failed to close the thousand vote gap. Uh, I found that quite fascinating. Uh, it was um, it was odd. He just conceded, and uh, the progressive Democratic nominee um, has a good, strong following, but uh, he conceded. Now. Uh, one thing in regards to elections, again, in the state of Louisiana, voters are coming up to have a very serious question. They will decide if they will amend their constitution. Basically, it'll remove uh, specific language in their state constitution that allows involuntary servitude as a punishment for a crime. So basically, the section will prohibit slavery and involuntary servitude. Um, uh, and it's going to say, does not apply the otherwise lawful administration of criminal justice. So it would add language to say that it prohibits slavery and involuntary servitude. And, and it's 2022 a few thinking caps on as to how um, this is pertinent. In 2022, Louisiana is still one of the nine states that has included provisions permitting involuntary servitude, but not slavery as a criminal punishment. Ten other states had constitutions that included provisions prohibiting enslavement and involuntary servitude, but with the exception for criminal punishments. Guys, are you looking at the legislation and the amendments that they're doing? Are you paying attention to how this is happening? So <laughs> what is really going on here? In Tennessee, they removed the language that allows the use of slavery and involuntary servitude as criminal punishments and replaced it with this statement, slavery and involuntary servitude are forever prohibited. Oregon repealed language from the state constitution that allows the use of slavery and involuntary servitude as criminal punishments and adds the language that authorizes the Oregon court or a probation or parole agency to order alternatives to incarceration for convicted individual as part of their sentencing. This is really weird. You guys, I hope you're paying attention. This is really, really weird. In Vermont, they repealed the language stating that persons can be held as servants, slaves, or apprentices with the person's consent or for payments of debts, damages, fines, costs, or the like, and add slavery and indentured servitude in any form or prohibited. Alabama ratified and updated and compiled state constitution that was drafted to remove language considered racist and that section stated that no form of slavery shall exist in the state and there shall not be any involuntary servitude otherwise than for the punishment of a crime of which the party shall have been duly convicted. That's being removed too. So if we can't make license plates and we can't work 
during our time. And then I guess that other state law that has been kicked in and liquefying human remains would be just fine, right? So weird. It's just really weird, these weird laws that people are voting on. In addition, in states, we have that um, citizenship is a voting requirement um, amendment on the ballot for Ohio. So apparently the Ohio Senate voted unanimously to pass uh, Joint Resolution 4, which is on the uh, main ballot this November the 8th, along with me. Uh, the measure is amending three sections of the Ohio Constitution. Section 1 of Article 5, Section 3 of Article 10, and Section 3 of Article 18. The language in Section 1, Article 5 would be changed from every citizen of the United States dot, 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 is entitled to vote in all elections to only a citizen of the United States is entitled to vote in all elections. That would prohibit non-citizens from voting in Ohio statewide or local elections. You know, kind of like that thing that Nadler said, it should be okay that they can locally vote. Now, that was introduced on May 17, 2022. Uh, J. Edwards sponsored it, and it passed the assembly. And so that's being done. I mean, it's a no-brainer, but whatever, right? I guess we have to, like, point shit out. Um, in our states, uh, well, I just found out that the military has now been alerted that monkeypox is on the rise. And... Um, you know, obviously questions are who wants some monkeypox vaccine? So uh, we actually have a stockpile of it three weeks ago when it broke, right? So I can report there has been a request for release of the Yainos vaccine from the national stockpile for some high risk contents of some early patient of some of the early patients. So that is actively happening now, says Dr. McQuinston, deputy director of the Division of High Consequence Pathogens and Pathology within the CDC's Natural Center for Emerging and Zoonotic Infectious Diseases, she said last week. Unlike COVID-19, which was caused by a newly discovered virus, we already have the monkeypox vaccine. And monkeypox can be spread through close personal contact, but not exclusively skin-to-skin -skin contact. You can transmit it even if you're close to a person and you're breathing together, but that usually takes a fair amount of time. Oh, so maybe we should just socially distance, right? We should distance each other. Now, vaccines, they say, barely reduce long-term long COVID risk. No way. One of the scariest consequences of contracted COVID-19 is the aftermath. Apparently, um, people who contract COVID-19, they have symptoms like internal tremors and vibrations, depression, lasting loss of taste and smell. They're all possible symptoms of long COVID, a post-acute sequel of SARS-CoV-2 infection. Oh, no. So I guess, you know, the vaccine, what's the point of getting it? Because you're going to, if you get it, you're going to get sick. You know, it's highly specific, highly specific. So weird, highly specific. I mean, now with uh, not having any smallpox vaccines, we're all getting monkeypox, apparently. 
Monkeypox is prevented by smallpox vaccination. Oh, I see where they're going with that. Now, what's funny is this is highly specific. People don't talk about the stories of genetic theft. One might say, what the hell is genetic theft? Well, genetic theft is a crime of non-consensual genetic collection and testing. I mean, what your government has been doing ever since Obamacare is there. And not only that, but when you leave tissues and coffee cups, cigarette butts, where you go, you know, you don't think much of it. But it happens when third parties are actually interested in retrieving this every day, taking your genetic information you've left behind. Third parties may be some mad scientist, a police officer, and their ability to even collect that evidence is highly unclear. And believe it or not, in the American legal system, DNA theft is not a crime. Rather, it's non-consensual collection. And DNA analysis and harboring is virtually unconstrained by law. See, that's something people should be concerned about. While they might seem like nothing, even Madonna, who was banned off Instagram for posting granny porn, right? That means herself naked, right? Um, She's been raising alarm bells about the potential of non-consensual collection of testing DNA for a long time. She actually hires people to sterilize the shit out of any dressing room she's at or concerts. And she wants her own toilet seats at each stop. Not because she's funny about it, because she doesn't want to leave DNA remnants behind. Uh, You know, the media love to attack her for that. And people made fun of her. But I mean, it's kind of like, you know, Martin Shkreli. He just wanted to get a strand of Hillary Clinton's hair. And he found himself in jail. So it seems like she doesn't want anything. And there's a likelihood of genetic paparazzis with DNA collection kits right around the corner. You leave your DNA DNA everywhere, right? Um, You know, you're eating at a restaurant and they take your food. Someone can take your DNA. So it's, it's quite a big deal. And even though um, genetic theft um, from someone like Madonna would probably get uh, into a courtroom, right? Uh, a judge would have to sit there and ask how genetic relates to personhood, identity, property, and health, and disease, and, and, and your reproductive rights, right? And so these are questions that were tried to be asked when we passed the GINA Act, right? And, uh, you know, using genetics in law enforcement and paternity tests and just using disregarded materials to genetically test, you know, from old crime scenes, new crime scenes. These are a very big deal. Right. Because what is the law on that? I mean, if 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 someone wants to say, you know, oh, you know, you know, someone spit on on the, you know, DNC window. Right. And, you know, they can't prove it of who did it. But they're like, oh, you know, I don't like her. 
And I, let's take two scenarios. One is I don't like Abby and I'm going to frame her for that shit. And another one is I am indifferent to Abby, right? But I'm looking through CODIS and she's on it. Or, uh, you know, she was in the area I saw her on camera, but her genetic information isn't on a database. She hasn't served in any government position or been incarcerated. So I can't look through. I'll look at the hospital. When was the last time she went? If they don't have a sample on file because she didn't give a sample uh, of blood, um, then I'm going to have to, like, you know, follow her around and pick up her paper cup when she throws it away from Starbucks. And say Abby, who I don't like, I framed, you know, how is she going to prove her case in court? And, you know, I have her genetic information. I will match whatever spit I got and say it was hers. And then the rest of the sample destroyed. So sorry about that. And suddenly Abby's in jail and she's like, what the hell? I wasn't even there. It doesn't matter. You can recreate whatever you want. It's a digital footprint. And then if, Abby did do it and I stole her Starbucks cup outside of her house so that I can say prove that Abby did it because she was in the area of the DNC building where she spit on it and I tested the coffee mug and those are the results. The judge will then question, you know, she disregarded the coffee cup, therefore it's for public use and consumption. So how do we protect our genetic information, considering that now they're going to put us on this QR code system? You're going to see a lot of that talk in the next coming months. So this is highly important that you pay attention to genetic paparazzis uh, that may be coming your way very soon. And, and that is actual factual news that will be coming. And don't say I didn't tell you now. In regards to what has been going on, right, um, in other states, like in Texas, there was another, um, there was a guy, right, who broke out on May 12th from a prison bus, right? And all the Texas Rangers, everybody and their mother were looking for this guy, right? He orchestrated it really well and he busted out of, the van that was transporting him. His name was Gonzalo Lopez. He was 46. He was uh, uh, in jail for life due to murder, right? He was serving a life sentence for murder. So um, here's how they found him. I, I, I want you guys to know that there was, um, the police were actually contacted by someone who hadn't heard from relatives who were visiting a vacation home in Centerville. So uh, basically these people were going to this vacation home that, that, that family shares in Centerville, Texas, and they didn't communicate to say, Hey, we're here. They're not responding to texts and shit. And they're like, you know, maybe something's wrong. So what happened was, see, when someone cares about you, shit manifests, right? Um, the police, when they got there, they found dead bodies of an adult and four boys, three brothers, and their cousin, all aged between 11 and 18, all dead, as well as their granddad. Um, <clears throat> when the police got there, they saw that the Chevy Silver Silverado that they had was missing. And they tracked the stolen truck in Wardanton, which is like a um, few hundred miles away from where he escaped. And um, 
there was a shootout and now he's dead. So the question someone would ask is, you know, obviously the guy killed all these people to take their car, didn't know them, um, murdered them and decided, no, nah, we're going to have a shootout. I'm not giving this one up. I'm not going back. The question then you ask yourself, and this is a serious question you will be asking yourself, as you can see from the legislation that's being passed now. And for the next few years, you will see a lot of uh, criminal punitive, uh, you know, sentences and what to do with criminals in jail or not jail or what are alternate things like maybe, I don't know, kiss your feet for a week, right? Not involuntary servitude unless it's for legal reasons. So there, there's a question. But these are questions you should ask yourself. Like this guy is serving a life sentence that we, our federal dollars are paying for. Uh, he was 46 at the time that he died and he had already been in there serving a life sentence, which means for the next 25 or even 30 years, because they get great care in there, um, you know, he would be living and breathing, making license plates uh, in some facility that's privately owned that's making some guy really rich and the government even richer. And then you question yourself, is that the right punishment to give to someone that takes someone's life away? And this is a question I, I, I would like to just plant the seed right now for you to think about a little bit, um, because these conversations are going to be real conversations that we're going to be having next year around this time. Now, uh, in that sense, right, since we're going to be going all through this, you have to look at what else is going on in our nation. We are seeing the prosecution of anyone that speaks up against anything that the media, like David Rothschild said, um, weren't doing their job. They're doing their job now. No one's talking about the things that they all have been told not to talk about. They're all in position. You're getting fired. You're getting whacked. You're getting me too'd. You're going to jail. We're going to leak your financials. We're going to leak pictures of you. You better sit the fuck put. You work for us. So now they're doing what they're doing, but they're coming hard on people that they shouldn't have been coming hard at. And um, so if you guys know Peter Navarro, who was a great, who was a great person to have in the White House, uh, quite a stellar guy. Uh, he has his own viewpoints. He sticks by them. And the one thing is, right, and I say this again and again, he is a person of his word. If he says, I'm going to do this, this is what I've experienced and seen. He's going to do it. He won't waver. He won't say, yeah, but, you know. If he says, well, my priority is, um, you know, to make sure that uh, number two pencils are always yellow, right? He won't say, well, you know, that's really important, but I'm not going to look at that right now. I'm going to look at this because it looks like it's better and maybe that'll help with the number two pencils being yellow. See, that's what a cop out does. That's what people do when they feel pressure doing what they're supposed to be doing. Peter Navarro doesn't give a shit. And this is what happened to him for not giving a shit. How are you all doing today? Good, how are you? It's fine. Another day in paradise here. So what do you think of what happened today? Let me, uh, let me just make a statement here, if I may. Uh, <clears throat> on uh, Tuesday, uh, in this courtroom right here, I filed uh, a civil suit against the Kangaroo Committee on the Hill. Uh, seven partisan Democrats, two Rhino Republicans. Um, the essence of that civil suit was that 
the subpoenas issued by the committee uh, are ultra-virus, unlawful, and unenforceable. And I made that case based on four legal arguments. Uh, the first is that this committee is neither duly authorized nor properly constituted, meaning that it doesn't follow the rules of either the House itself or the committee's own authorizing resolution. I would refer you to the civil suit, but it's HRES 8 uh, and HRES 1037. I am not the only one who has filed uh, to question the validity of that kangaroo committee. Nancy Pelosi herself calls that committee unprecedented, and she's absolutely right. The second point, um, and, and by the way, um, my book, Taking Back Trump's America, I need everybody in America to buy that book on Amazon today. That is for two reasons. One is that's going to be my legal defense fund because these people are coming at me hard. Okay, so what was the title again? Book, Taking Back Trump's America. I hey, let me go look for that. Because he's right. He's like, I need you to buy it because I'm going to need it for my legal defense. Taking Back Trump's America by Peter Navarro. Let's see. It's on Kindle and it's on hardcover and it's on pre-order and I'm going to pre-order it. I want to fund his lawsuit and I'm placing my order. It cost me $28. So he put that out there and a lot of people attacked him and um, it's not um, buy my book, you know, look, I'm writing a book, you know, just because you wrote a book doesn't mean it's true. And just because Peter Navarro wrote a book doesn't mean it's true either. But, um, he is, I mean, I feel so bad. I just want to embrace him. He's a very strong and smart man. But when he tells you what he went through, it's just crazy. I need everybody in America to buy that book on Amazon today. That is for two reasons. One is that's going to be my legal defense fund because these people are coming at me hard. Number two, that book is about why we need to take the House of Representatives back from the kangaroos on Capitol Hill. The second case, part of the civil case, is simply that over a five-year period, Congress has weaponized the investigatory powers of Congress in a way which is unconstitutional. The people of America need to understand Congress has the right to investigate, but only for non-punitive legislative purposes. What that kangaroo committee is doing right now is investigating for punitive purposes. They're essentially acting as judge, jury, and executioner. Their mission, their clear mission, is to prevent Donald John Trump from running for president in 2024 and being elected for president. And people like me are in their way, and they're not coming for me and Trump, they're coming for you. All 74 million of you who voted for Donald John Trump. Hang on, I'm not finished. 
You need to read, do your homework. Read that. I, that case went out, uh, every one of you, I bet there isn't a single person in here who read that whole case. The third issue is, is that the Constitution is a prohibition against what's called bills of attainders. Okay? This is bills against undue punishment of citizens of this country. Today, the punishment was in, which was inflicted on a man presumed innocent and innocent until proven guilty demonstrates the utter disregard for the Constitution and the law that the Department of Justice has. I sent them a letter on Wednesday offering a modus vivendi. I told them contact an individual who would discuss this matter. What did they do? They didn't call me. I spoke to the, the FBI agent who arrested me. I spoke to him Wednesday night. I said, Walter, whatever you need, you don't have to come banging on my door like you did last week getting me out of bed. I'm here to cooperate, okay? What did they do, right? I, I was on my way to Nashville today to do a TV appearance with Mike Huckabee show, right? And instead of coming to my door where I live, which, by the way, is right next to the FBI, instead of calling me and saying, hey, we need you down at court, we've got a warrant for you, I would have gladly come. What did they do? Why didn't they do that? They intercepted me getting on the plane. And then they put me in handcuffs. They bring me here. They put me in leg irons. They stick me in a cell. By the way, just historical note, I was in John Hinckley's cell. They see now let's talk about John Hinckley for a second, and then we'll go back to this. Who is John Hinckley? So surprisingly, they put him in that cell. And guess what's on the news today? Someone celebrating their release. Do you know who John Hinckley is? Well, you're about to find out. So weird that it's all happening like this, isn't it? So weird, the timing. Who attempted to assassinate President Ronald Reagan will be set free. John Hinckley is going to leave prison in two weeks. This was big news yesterday. Robert Charles serves in the Reagan administration and joins us now to react. Uh, good morning to you. I want to read you the statement the judge released on Hinckley's release. He says he has been in full sustained remission for more than 25 years. He has followed every condition imposed by the court. He has demonstrated self-awareness and responsibility for his mental illness. We are not losing sight of what he did 40 years ago. I am confident Mr. Hankley will do well in the years remaining to him. I hope the public will understand he has made such progress and he's not a danger anymore. What do you think about this? I think, Carly, it sends the exact wrong message at a time when violence is rising in this country. You know, just to hear that, that statement, you, know, you don't go into remission for an assassination. Okay? That's a misconception. And the notion that the prosecution argued that he might not become unstable again. Look, uh, ironically enough, the, uh, the Democrat uh, governor of California held back the release of Sirhan Sirhan, even though a probation board said, go ahead and release him. Uh, I think this is a mistake. You know, Hinckley not only uh, almost killed the president of the United States, severely impaired Reagan's ability to operate for a long time, but he also changed permanently the life of James Brady, uh, as well as the Secret Service agent and a D.C. police officer. He should be in prison for life. Yeah, it sends a 
message to both the bad guys and to the rest of us who aren't presidents. I mean, if this is how you treat somebody who tries to kill a president, how are you going to treat the rest of us if somebody tries to do something like that to us? Meantime, I want to get your thoughts on this. The Kremlin is saying President Biden is diligently adding fuel to the fire by sending advanced rocket systems ammunitions to Ukraine. They also say he is increasing the risk of a confrontation between the U.S. and Russia. Is that an accurate statement by the Kremlin or is it an acknowledgement that what we're doing is getting to him? can leave that alone i just wanted to say the irony of placing peter navarro in a cell just a couple days before you release him not like they want to assassinate anyone or maybe he'll uh, you know this is how they're gonna start mourning (laughs) so weird it's like an important historical note okay that's punitive That, that what they did to me today violated the Constitution. In my lawsuit, in my lawsuit, I discussed going back to Nixon, GSA, and other cases that what this government is supposed to do when they have an issue such as they've had, and this is not the first rodeo they've had, they've had plenty of people question the validity of their subpoenas. What they're supposed to do is take the least burdensome alternative. I told him, go negotiate with Donald John Trump and his attorneys because I'm in an untenable constitutional position. There's no settled law on this. There's no settled law. And by the way, the law leans squarely towards my right to senior testimony immunity and President Trump's right to executive privilege. What did they do? They didn't negotiate with the president, as I asked him. That would have been the least burdensome. They didn't file a civil suit like they did with Mears and Bolton back in the Bush administration when they didn't control the Justice Department. What did they do? They they just came with the full force of the federal government and put the hammer down trying to intimidate me. All right. Hang on. Question, Peter. What he's saying is true, yet it's him, Peter Navarro, that they went for. There are people that are saying that this is okay on the left. It is not okay because it's not Peter. It's not President Trump doing something. It's you. Their laws and what they're implementing right now, the changes that they are making are to entrap you. People that are fighting the system are simply in the way. And therefore, you must understand that there are many within the movement that are guiding people to attempt certain actions to rectify the wrong Because they're the path of least resistance, meaning you'll make some noise, but no one gives a fuck. Please go on and keep doing that. When what should happen is that you should be rattling the cages, not going into other ones that have repeatedly failed. Again, humans are animals, the only fucking animals on this planet.
that will do the same shit over and over again, thinking that they'll get a different outcome. And it's so unfortunate to see it. So unfortunate. One, one last thing. Nobody, one last thing. I have represented myself pro se in this matter because part of the Democrats' strategy is to engage in what is called lawfare, which is to say to use the legal system for effectively coercion and illicit ends. I do not want to spend several hundred thousand dollars on lawyers. But the reason why I'm here, and this is not about me, folks, not about me here. This is about a constitutional principle that is important to effective presidential decision-making and what the Justice Department is doing is wrong on all manner of counts. All right, let me stop here. Now, let me warn you here. I'm not going to answer any questions pertaining to the case because with this indictment and arrest, um, I can't speak specifically about legal matters. So I'm warning you on that, okay? Like you said, it's not about him. It's about the people and it's about the Constitution. And if people paid attention to it, they'd see it. They literally charged him for defying Congress, yet we had Adam Schiff talking shit and lying and no one did anything about it. We had people testifying that the machines aren't connected to the Internet. Fuck you, Siza. I already have the documents proving everything. Unfortunately, I don't know how I'm going to put it out there. It seems that I'm kind of stumped. I can put it out there. I could just drop it on Telegram. No. I need to put it somewhere with maximum efficacy. That's how you do it. Where all eyes are watching one thing. And while they're watching for one thing, something else comes from the, the blindsided left. And they're just like, what happened? And it's like, yeah, so that just happened. Strategy. And sometimes, you know, the strategies you have in mind don't work because people are self-preservationists. And this is how it is. So you have to find avenues. Lots of avenues. You're seeing them bring up weird statements in regards to what is to come from these elections. But I'm going to tell you some weird things you probably don't know. What you don't know is that in Lebanon, I guess now with him, Abedin, all this shit, and Hillary Clinton's anyway, one of her friends or whatever, um, He's actually suing the state for mistakes they made by pursuing him for embezzlement. In Sudan, a protester was shot as they're having rallies in Khartoum. Gunshot. Boom. The protests were, um, it's like an annual thing they do of uh, the deadly raid and sit-in calling for civilian rule after they overthrew Omar al-Bashir. It is the most 
insane thing because the medics are reporting that 99 people have been killed in anti-coup protests. Now, United Nations and African Union-led efforts uh, to broker political mediation have made uh, absolutely zero progress. They suck. They don't know how to do it, but they're going to start talking again. It's... um. It's a little bit weird because right now they have military rulers that are under financial hardship um, and that financial hardship was to get the state of Sudan outside of a state of emergency to show them that they trust them with things that's not so much of an emergency. It's the most weirdest thing. They're all killing each other. And you have to ask yourself, what the fuck is going on in Sudan? And what African Union, you say that, rolls off your tongue. Yeah, they're talking about it out. And no one's paying attention. Finland and Sweden have put in their NATO bids. And now they're just waiting to see if Turkey, not Turkey, Turkey, um, you know, will allow them to enter. You know, they've been having conversations and this is why he goes first and then Putin, you see, this is how they're going to attempt it. I wonder if, you know, Hinky's going to take a trip to St. Petersburg. But um, in other news, NASA is also, you know, and I feel kind of proud in a way. OK, so let me tell you guys a story. So I did this paper and I was um, um, studying the effects of secondary immune response and how uh, secondary immune response is what causes uh, you know, permanent paralysis of uh, patients that have had blunt force trauma to the spine or some trauma to their spinal cord. And the paper that I wrote, I actually published that um, in some, I, I don't even remember the journal that it was in. It's, it's so specific. But I gave it to the Christopher and Dana Reeves Foundation uh, for, for a grant. And basically, I wanted to like say, oh, thanks for the grant. But maybe you, you have better scientists that can take my idea and run with it because I don't have time for this. I just had a better idea. So here. And the whole notion of it is, just so you know, um, there's no such thing as gravity. It's tensegrity, tension, tension of interactions. And when you get injured, um, say you are in a car wreck and your spinal cord is injured, what happens is you have your um, innate response that comes in. So where it's hurt, all that gunk is eaten up, your mitochondria are all messed up, it's garbage, right? So you have your white blood cells there trying to clean up, but they're slow. So what happens is a secondary immune response comes in and it actually causes a permanent scar, hence why your neurons can't regrow when they normally can. So yeah, so to heal the spinal cord, yeah, I've talked about it before, um, you have to be in a zero gravity um, position because it disallows diapetesis. Diapetesis uses um, forces um, that are tensegral within the biodome. And, and this is how I'm going to explain it to you. What you perceive as gravity, I say there's no such thing as gravity. It's tensegrity uh, proximal to distance um, to the energy field that you are at. Now, the ISS space station is in uh, is outside of the parameters where such things would apply. And so I guess someone found it and it's been over 15 years, so I guess they can do it. Right. Um, 
NASA is actually has has been is set to send, I think, on the ninth or the tenth of this month, um, slices of human skin, uh, actual human skin that will be attached to machinery. So there's uh, circulation of nutrients, so it stays stays like as if it's alive. And they're sending that, you know, obviously with, uh, you know, the Dragon capsule of SpaceX. And what they will be testing is they will be seeing how the skin heals, what the um, response is. So what they will look at is, um, you know, like if we stitch a place up, you know, uh, let's give it three days and see what the healing process is, um, you know, in space like this with um, no gravity or this or that. So I, I find it quite fascinating uh, because I believe this kind of research will indicate uh, this tensegrity. I know a lot of people call it gravity. And, and I remember when I coined it tensegrity, I looked everywhere and there was just this one mention by one guy in the 90s um, calling interaction between cells is a mechanical response tensegrity it was a it's a, it's a weird kind of feeling how cells can 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 feel like a pull in a tug it's like an energy pull so um uh, that's interesting nasa is doing that so then the question lies as to why would they want to send people out to space now to do the healing who knows that's a very good question Another thing, speaking of space, is that we're going to have one of the biggest um, uh, supermoons. So what we're going to have is um, one of the shortest nights ever, right? Uh, in June, of course, right? And... What we are going to see is that this supermoon, a oh, supermoon basically is like a big full moon that just looks bigger and brighter than normal, right? But the difference between the supermoon and the normal moon is that um, you could just tell that one is more lit up, okay? Um, the full moon in June is usually called like strawberry moon. So some people may call the June supermoon like a super strawberry or something, whatever. But apparently, um, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn will all appear in order in the sky after the 15th of June. So they're going to have an alignment for about two weeks, which is going to be quite interesting considering tensegrity and um, avenues. It's quite fascinating um, to see that all of those will be aligned right behind the moon. So I, I thought I would bring that up because it's a fascinating um, event and it's going to be fascinating to watch it for two weeks and see, like I said, June is going to be a bitch and it's starting. Um, Guess that event starts, you know, around the alignment begins around the 9th. So it'll peak around what the 16th, I guess. That'll be interesting. And you know, in England, do you know that on full moons, they have like a bunch of police officers hired and stuff? Do you know that? That's actually a real thing. People do that. They hire more with full moons. 
I just wanted to point it out, not saying that the moon is what the moon is and the planets are what the planets are. We're totally keeping this. What is it? Gender neutral, sphere, flat, circles, dots, whatever. Places, positions, satellites, fictitious, machines, whatever you want to call them. The bottom line is, no matter how you want to call them, they have some sort of effect. And if all those are aligned for two weeks solid, that's a pretty big effect. Considering all the craziness that's happening now, uh, on the craziness that's happening, um, before I close out next week, I will be starting my show at a different time since primetime wants to have us watching, uh, the judicial committee. So I believe the time that I'm looking to do is morning again. And, um, I, everyone loved the noon time, but I think uh, a 10 o'clock show would be perfect. 10 to 12 would be fantastic. Uh, that way I can grab my overseas people. So I'll be starting that on the 6th um, uh, to have it done. But on the other hand, <laughs> yeah, I think that's what I'm going to be doing. Uh, since we're going to have a lot of things coming up on primetime, it's going to be interesting. I will stream that on primetime. So, uh, that's my thought of doing it in the morning, but I'll let you guys know on telegram. Uh, my thought was doing it in the morning or maybe just earlier in the evening. Uh, you know, during, I guess that would only be during East coast commute. People on the West coast are still working. So I have to figure it out. Um, if I should do it, uh, you know, instead of, 7.30, start at 6 and end at 8 so we can get the prime time. So maybe that one. Thank you for the rant, Gold Star. So that's that's my thought, actually, that I was going to be doing just a little bit earlier. Uh, so that way we can roll into the streaming of the prime time, too. Uh, so we can watch together. So on that note, um, I just want to say that I hope many of you are paying attention to the odd responses and activities of many. Uh, the media, you already know how that pans out, and, and that's understandable. You understand how they operate and how they work. But do people really understand what is about to be unleashed as of like the 9th or 10th? There's a lot that's going to be coming to the forefront. A lot. And while they believe that they're in the winning position. People must understand that uh, evidence kills all narratives. And so if there's evidence, you will fail regardless. All these people right now attacking President Trump and attacking the people are people that do shit like this. Let's have a little fun. Let me tell you guys a story. Let me, let me, let me give you some insight to Tory understanding humans. So there's something on Craigslist that a lot of people don't know. And I um, found it so astonishing. I don't remember what video I saw. And I was like, damn, stop it. Somebody else does this shit. So I'm on Craigslist right now showing it to you on my screen. If you go to any Craigslist, there's a place that's called Missed Connections. So if you go to Craigslist and I'm in the Washington, D.C. area, you go under community, there's something called Missed Connections. Now, I starred some of them because they were funny to read. So let me read out some of these funny ones. Here's what they're for. 
These are statements from people that, um, you know, see someone at the park and they were too pussy to talk about it. So um, they go in there and they say shit. So I want you to listen to some of this. Walking on MD Avenue in Rockville City Center, downtown Rockville, near City Hall, you, strikingly handsome white man, five foot nine to six foot one, with brown hair and some scruff, walking in jeans and a light short sleeve t- white button down dress shirt with some pattern dots, circles, paisley. You had earbuds in and weren't in a hurry. Walking towards the back of Rockville City Hall on Maryland Avenue. Around 1245 on April 30th, you look like my favorite actor's twin. Look to be 30 or 40s. F for female for male, but I'm pretty sure you're too put together to be straight. If you see this, tell me what color those earbuds were and where you ended up the hell there's some weird ones though hold on this one female companion needed to occupy the other side of my bed inquire for details walmart burke happy hump day this is so crass giving away free juice load to any willing catchers this morning don't be shy say hi this is for this morning details hit me up damn Damn, what the hell? Wait, there's more. Let's go look at more. Um, Some of them are not missed things. Yard cleanup, Fort Washington. I'm looking to hire someone for my for some landscaping yard cleanup. I had a great guy that did landscaping and other miscellaneous projects in and around the house. Unfortunately, I've been unable to reach him. In addition to the landscaping, he also reconstructed my walkway and pier leading to the river. He did a great job. I have an immediate need for someone to assist in the yard and beach cleanup, as well as some work inside. He was extremely talented, hardworking, and incredibly attractive. Wait, stop. Wait, what? I'm looking for someone with the same attributes. So you want him to be talented, hardworking, and attractive to clean your yard and your beach. You should read that again. Next. You were walking your mom's dog in Potomac. In Potomac the other day, we chatted for a bit about my glasses. Care to chat some more? No, pussy, you should have done it then. Saw you at Burke Nursery and Garden Sunday morning. We made eye contact several times at Burke Nursery Sunday morning, and you looked at me as you opened the door to leave where you paid for your plants. Haven't stopped thinking about you since. Would love to talk to you. Message me, please. The fuck? (laughs) How's this? In traffic and at the spotlight, Manassas. We were driving west on 66 from Fairfax area when we spotted each other. The traffic was thick and slow. You're an older lady with longer red hair driving a gold car on the brunette who couldn't stop smiling at you. While sitting still, you caught me doing something and you had me roll down the window. You said six words that made me incredibly excited. I was so flushed that I just laughed and rolled my window back up. We both happened to exit Manassas. At the stoplight, we stopped at. 
You were going straight and I was going left. I wave and blew you a kiss before driving away. Please see this. Please respond. You can please identify that you're the L for L who said those six words to me, telling me what they were. I'm still excited and I can't stop thinking about you. You know, we should do this every Friday night, just going through really fucked up shit like this. Lady walking with groceries, Dale City. You were walking on Miniville Road in a white dress carrying some shopping bags. Your beauty caught my eye and I stopped my car later on the side of the road that you made a right turn. And I wanted to say something to you, but I was afraid you may panic. If you're reading this, please respond and tell me what you were doing while walking. The fuck? Guys, I'm like, but I trolled DCs for a very specific reason. You know, a lot of people don't know, but some of the print ads and classifieds were ways we would communicate. Here's a fun one. Red line train East pack with God queen pin in Bethesda. This was on May 10th, 2022. I think you got on at the medical center and got off at the Metro center. You sat in front of me, must be in your late forties, fifties, about five, eight, losing hair in the front with glasses. Why the fuck would you say that if you're kissing their ass? Anyway, you were wearing a Navy jacket, buttoned down shirt and jeans. You had a small suitcase carrying a gray East pack backpack with 200 Verizon inaugural sticker and a pin that read, God queen, are you local or visiting guy here? Damn. So... These are things that um, these avenues are used for communication. Some of them are creepy as shit. Some of them mean more, like the landscaping and beach all the way down to her pier. Um, you know, you should look at your local. You'll be very surprised while you, what you will find there. Very surprised what you will find there. I repeat, very surprise what you will find there. You know, that's, that's, that's life, right? We find interesting things of humankind that make you kind of think and cock your head and be like, shit, is this for real? Um, but on the other hand, it's kind of like the um, weird classifieds in the newspaper. They've just um, evolved. I hope that says with what I wanted to say. On that note, have a great evening, and I will see you guys on Monday.